Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Frank Snap. Frank served with the CIA during the Vietnam War. He was the chief analyst of North Vietnamese strategy. He was there at the fall of Saigon, and today we discuss his experiences during the Vietnam War and the intelligence failures that contributed to the US and South Vietnamese loss of the war. Just before we begin, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Every subscriber will help keep this podcast going and will enable me to grow the podcast to bi-monthly. Benefits to subscribers is you'll get early access to episodes and we will be offering transcripts of episodes from September. There's also an exclusive bonus episode just for Patreon subscribers waiting for you online. To become a subscriber, go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. If you like the work that I'm doing, you might also like my film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction. And if you go to Amazon.com or iTunes, you can purchase the film for about $2.99. This is one of the longest interviews to date and possibly one of the most fascinating interviews I've recorded on this podcast. As the episode is over two hours long, I have collaborated with our composer, Andy Bird, and created a little trailer to give you an idea of what's in store for you. So pour yourself your favourite drink, sit back and join me on a trip back in time to 1960s Vietnam. This was manna from spy heaven. In the early 1960s, there was a defector from the communists whose name was Vo Van Ba. And that's when we realised we had the mother load. want to give you a little background on Nguyen Van Thuy. He had become so disciplined that he could tell the time of day simply from the chemistry of his body. If you were a double agent pretending to be a good communist, you liked Salem cigarettes. But this is critically important. The communists literally had us wired for sound. The CIA had its fecal filters, which meant the straining out of any nasty stuff about the South Vietnamese. So we blinded ourselves right to the end of the war. From the very beginning, the mixing of operations and intelligence work in the agency got in the way of honest reporting. When I arrived in 1969, there was an effort to change that and to get the agency back to the classic business of collecting intelligence. We had a functioning agent inside the Communist command. That was like having a spy inside Hitler's bunker. I'm this kid. I know nothing. I'm suddenly briefing the ambassador. I'm briefing the South Vietnamese military. I'm heading into the field. It was sick. I remember I was on a, a Porter aircraft going down to the Delta one time. We took we took rounds through the wings, and I thought, my God, I'm, I'm right where I should be. It was so exhilarating, and it was so dangerous. I thought I had arrived in spy heaven.
opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Frank, could you talk to us a bit about yourself and how you came to join the CIA and what you can tell us about your career in the CIA? I was brought up a very conservative Southerner. My father was a very good friend in college, Columbia College Mm. and then law school, Mm. with William Colby, who later became my boss, head of the CIA. Um, In 1968, I was in Columbia School of International Affairs Uh, The campus was racked by the Strawberry Rebellion, which was our side of the worldwide sort of nihilistic uh, anti-war protests going on everywhere. Mm. I didn't really understand it. I was your straight-laced conservative, perfect fodder for the CIA. And my professor at one point at Columbia School of International Affairs, Philip Mosley, uh, who was a recruiter for the CIA, I didn't know this. He came to me and said, you know, you're really not wise enough to be in the State Department, but how would you like to be a spy? I was facing draft at the time, the danger of going to Vietnam, and I thought, wow, James Bond, not bad. He said, yes, this will keep you out of Vietnam. Signed up, immediately recruited. I was assigned to the NATO desk, And a jokester among my agency pals decided to put my name in for a Vietnam assignment without telling me. And I was immediately accepted um, because the agency had a 1,200-strong station in Saigon in 1968-69. They were desperate for warm bodies, and that's about all I had to offer, but it was enough. So I was suddenly put through paramilitary training And I was off to Vietnam in 1969. Hmm. That's how I got there. I was totally ill-equipped to be there. I was cowardly. I spoke no known language except French. And um, I didn't know the first thing about the war. I didn't have any strong feelings about whether we should be there or not. I suspect that I was suspicious of the the anti-war movement that was building on campuses across the United States. In any event, I was plunked right down. And this was 1969. It was a turning point in the war. It was the year that Vietnamization, the beginning of the US withdrawals began to take place or got underway. Uh, The South Vietnamese were to take over the war. Can you give us a little context of the Vietnam War and the CIA's involvement? This was basically the context, the background, the picture. Despite the arrival of U.S. forces in 1965, and despite William Westmoreland, General Westmoreland's sweep and destroy, search and destroy operations, his attrition strategy, despite all of that, Mm. each year, the North Vietnamese have been able to send down the Ho Chi Minh Trail system, 60,000 to 100,000 of their reinforcements, and it kept the war alive. Whatever we did, That's what they were doing. So the war was very much with us. Uh, In 1968, during the Tet Offensive and then the follow-up initiatives, the communist forces had been decimated. It's something that most Mm. people don't seem to understand. And the communists, despite their public relations coup in the United States, despite that, they were downcast because... um, They had lost so many forces. And most importantly, there had been no general uprising, no groundswell of 
support in the cities to to receive their forces. And consequently, they hadn't won hearts and minds. They would never do that in the war, despite what revisionist historians say, whenever there were population movements within South Vietnam uh, in the war years and in the ceasefire period, they were always towards the government side. Refugees did not flow into the arms of the communists. One of the Mm. questions that you put to me in your written queries before this broadcast was, how did the South Vietnamese feel? What was their view of the war? I would say that most Vietnamese first loyalty was to their ancestral grounds. And whoever messed with those grounds was their enemy. And whoever helped protect them was their friend. And Mm. as long as the United States didn't bomb the bejesus out of somebody's rice paddy, that farmer would sit on the fence and sort of side with the Americans because that's where the money, where the pacification program was coming from, where the bennies were coming Mm. from. Mm. So uh, without getting into the nuts and bolts of winning hearts and minds, suffice it to say that most Vietnamese were fence sitters and they were willing to give the government and the Americans the benefit of the doubt. One other point that should be noted, between 1960 and 1965, the demographics of South Vietnam changed dramatically. Half of the population moved into the cities, thus severing the communists' immediate contact with them And so by the time I got to Vietnam in 1969, we were dealing with a a, a heavily urbanized South Vietnamese population with all the complications and mixed loyalties and the difficulties of recruiting people that entailed. So the Vietnam that I encountered in 1969 was very different from the one that the first American advisors in 1961 encountered. That was a rural Vietnam Mine was a very different one. Now, what about the spy war that I stepped into? Hmm. Well, the spy war for the North Vietnamese and the communists was going damn well, very, very well by the time I arrived. In fact, it had been going well for most of the past 10 years. Uh, Very early, the communists managed to roll up all the infiltrators the CIA had sent into North Vietnam to sabotage the North. That's because very early on, the spy master running their catch operation managed to snag a radio that was being used by infiltrators and he co-opted it and turned it against the infiltrators. So everybody who followed walked into a trap. And uh, the guy who put this thing together was a former bodyguard of Ho Chi Minh, a genius. His father was one of the great original revolutionaries in the North. His name was Nguyen Van Thai. That name is important to me. He would later be captured in the South, and I would be assigned to interrogate him. He was the highest-ranking prisoner we ever captured, a fascinating character, and I'll come back to him in a little bit. I want to go ahead and discuss, though, further the spy war itself. Uh, The communists, as I said, had scored lots of gains in the spy war by the time I got to Saigon. One of the things they had done is they planted spies throughout the South Vietnamese government and military. By 1971, according to one CIA estimate, there were 30,000 communist operatives embedded in the government 
and the South Vietnamese military. And that meant these institutions were essentially Swiss cheese. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they had scored some fantastic coups. For instance, in 1963, one of their spies managed to insinuate himself into the top spot in the pacification program then operating was called the Strategic Hamlets Programs. And, and what he did was to sabotage it from the top and wrecked it. So our first uh, pacification operation in Vietnam fell prey to communist espionage. So they continued to build their spy networks. And by the end of the war, just to jump forward a little bit, end of the war, they had at least four spies planted inside the South Vietnamese command. That meant they were able to anticipate everything the government was going to do. Most historians do not factor this in in their analyses of the war. Mm. But this is critically important. The communists literally had us wired for sound, and we never could overcome it. Now, there was another side to the intelligence picture, the spy war picture, and that was the American side, of course. For the U.S. military command in Vietnam, MACV, uh, this was the organization which ran the war for the United States government. And it was in uh, fine fettle when I arrived in 1969. But it had been slow to the spy game. MACV didn't have a spy shop. They had no assets on the ground, nobody to spy on the other side. And here's one of the crazy things. U.S. military intelligence officers, people from DIA, their spy agencies, we're not allowed to spy on the South Vietnamese. Why was that? It was felt that it was a, not a gentlemanly thing to do. Now, now, that meant the greatest spy talent in the U.S. military was focused only on the enemy, not on our friends. Mm. And that would prove to be a, 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 a terrific void in the intelligence picture. In any event, we did have advisors, military advisors operating with the South Vietnamese, operating in the pacification program, and they could report on their South Vietnamese counterparts, but they were handicapped by something known as the buddy syndrome. And that boiled down to this. Look, if you were working with the South Vietnamese, the last thing you were going to do is report something nasty about him, yeah. report his flaws, because then he wouldn't work with you. So those flaws never made it into the military's intelligence database. Furthermore, the U.S. military's intelligence analyses were just crap. They were a mess. They were politicized from the beginning to accentuate the positive. For instance, in 1967, they set about to analyze communist force strengths, that is the size of communist forces in the South, and to put a spin on it and to make Westmoreland's attrition strategy look good, they undercounted communist force strengths. They said that communist forces, including irregulars, amounted to 300,000. Actually, the number was double that. And in 1968, the uncounted communist forces gave the communists the edge that enabled them to surprise us in the Tet Offensive. So this shortfall was absolutely was absolutely critical and and blinded us. Are you able to talk to us about the effectiveness of CIA operations during your time serving? First, I should note there were there was one thing that was off limits to everybody in intelligence uh, on the American side, and that was the topic of 
South Vietnamese corruption. It simply couldn't be mentioned. The CIA had its fecal filters, which meant the straining out of any nasty stuff about the South Vietnamese. And the U.S. military wasn't looking for any bad stuff about our allies. So we blinded ourselves right to the end of the war, to the rot that was destroying Saigon's capacity to fight. The only Hmm. comprehensive study done on South Vietnamese corruption was done by a South Vietnamese general working for the vice president's office in Saigon in 1972. His name was General Hugh. General Hugh found that corruption was pervasive throughout the government. So we have spies all over the place, and now we have corruption. We have corruption. General Hugh filed his report with his superiors in the Saigon government. He was promptly fired. He was returned to a field command where he was eventually murdered by the South Vietnamese commander, whom he'd figured as one of the more corrupt commanders in the South Vietnamese army. So Mm. corruption just went by the wayside. And Mm. it was, as with the enemy spy operations, as with a number of communist forces, a blind spot. How do you win a war when you have so many blind spots? And these are crippling ones. These go to how tough the enemy is, how resilient your allies are. We didn't have any of that. All right. What was what was the reason for the blind spot? Very simple. The reason for the blind spot was that if you were going to persuade Congress to keep throwing money at the South Vietnamese, the last thing you wanted to do was to admit to them that the communists owned them. And number mm. two, their spies did. And they were so corrupt, they couldn't absorb effective aid or aid effectively, even if they tried. Mm. In 1965, the U.S. military command deliberately inflated aid requests by 50% beyond anything justifiable, simply to make up for the pilfering that would Mm. take place Mm. at the hands of corrupt South Vietnamese officers and officials. But So we got blind spot, but the CIA added to these problems. Originally, the agency addressing one of the questions you put to me was engaged in the Phoenix program, the pacification program, the Phoenix program being the assassination program that we set up to eliminate the communist infrastructure. didn't work. We killed a lot of the wrong people. But um, these operations, including our efforts to bulk up the South Vietnamese government, uh, took up most of our efforts and took away from intelligence gathering. Mm. And in fact, they perverted intelligence gathering because how do you promote a program like the Phoenix? How do you promote a program like pacification? How do you promote a military officer or spy officer for the South Vietnamese? And at the same time, judge him objectively or it objectively. You can't do it. So from the very beginning, the mixing of operations and intelligence work in the agency got in the way of honest reporting, and that obtained to the end of the war. Now, when I arrived in 1969, there was an effort to change that and to get the agency back to the classic business of collecting intelligence, and there was really one bright spot in the CIA's record. In the early 1960s, there was a defector from the communists whose name was Vo Van Ba. 
He quit the communists because he didn't like their use of terror to win hearts and minds. And he moved to Tainan province. That was a place west of Saigon where the communist command made its home mm. in Black Virgin Mountain, mm. a cave complex in this outcropping. And he set up shop as a slash and burn farmer, but he was also informing for the police special branch, yeah. which was a part of the South Vietnamese police owned and operated by the CIA. In 1965, Vovan Ba managed to get to know a lot of passing uh, itinerant cadre, communist cadre from the communist command right next door in Tainan. The communist command was the central office. The acronym was COSVIN, COSVIN, the central office for South Vietnam. He wormed his way into it. Wow. The special branch, the, the police, gave him poison peanuts to feed to the communists, which is basically harmless but real information about government operations. And he was able to use this to establish his bona fides. In 1968, little known to anybody, Vo Van Ba, this newly established agent of ours, gave us a five-day warning of the coming Tet Offensive. That warning caused American troops and South Vietnamese police garrisoned around Saigon to heighten their vigilance, to dig in, and to, to be able to confront the coming communist offensive. That action and that intelligence helped save Saigon from the communists overrunning it in 1968. So yeah. here we had, by the end of 1968, and by the time I arrived in Saigon, we had pure gold. We had a functioning agent inside the communist command. That was like having a spy inside Hitler's bunker. Mm. We were in a position to know everything. The communists were briefing their own cadre about where they were going in the war. So I was blessed when I arrived because I stepped into a situation which was uh, ginned up for a hell of a good ride in the intelligence area. Now, who was I? I arrived. I said I was nothing. I didn't know anything, but I was an analyst. I was an, not an operative. I was an analyst. And there was a special spot in the Saigon station for analysts. It was unique in all CIA operations in the world. It was made up of a small group of highly trained analysts with the highest intelligence clearances you can imagine. I read communications intercepts. I read all the reporting from Vovan Va. I had the run of the shop. Now, why was this? Because the operative in the field who was actually case handling a particular agent like Vovan Va was always vulnerable to capture. You couldn't give him all the intelligence he, the case officer needed mm. to exploit the spy to get the most from Vovan Ba. So they would bring people like me in to debrief the spy yeah. and to provide the case officer with background information. So when I got there, I'm this kid. I know nothing. I'm suddenly briefing the ambassador. I'm briefing the South Vietnamese military. I'm yeah. heading into the field. I'm, I'm engaging with the, uh, 
with our SEAL team people, our Green Beret people. I'm going into interrogation centers. I'm actually interrogating a newly captured guy named uh, Wen Van Tai, the spy master from Hanoi. I'm getting my feet wet, and man, it was heady. I thought I had arrived in spy heaven. I was in the midst of everything, and it was sick. It was sick. I remember I was on a, a Porter aircraft going down to the Delta one time. We took, we took rounds through the wings, and I thought, my God, I'm right where I should be. It was so exhilarating, and it was so dangerous. Yeah. But when you're a young person and really stupid, you think you're bulletproof, and that's sort of where I was. Well, something very big happened. In 1969, a major intelligence coup that changed everything and gave Vauvan Ba renewed importance. We captured in its entirety the entire communist postmortem on their offensives in 1968. Wow. Yeah. It was called Cosvin Resolution 9. Cosvin, again, the acronym for the Communist Command in the South. We captured this damn thing. It was 90 pages long. My little unit in the CIA station was assigned to analyze it. It was at incredible significance for Vietnamization. Again, this is the newly announced policy by the new Nixon administration mm. that would call for the withdrawal of American forces and the substitution of the South Vietnamese military in major combat roles. This could only work if we knew the context, and Cosvin Resolution 9 told us this, critically important. It told us that from the communist-owned standpoint, 1968, the Tet Offensive had been a disaster. They had taken terrible losses, and here's the, here's the zinger. It would take them two years to make up those losses, in which time they would not mount major military activity, certainly no more uh, general offensives or countrywide offenses. Mm. Wow, imagine that. You're a spy in Saigon, you're an American spy in Saigon, as I was. You get the mother load. You suddenly learn that we have a two-year window in which to make the objectives of Vietnamization work. Mm. Wow, bango. But, but you need corroboration for this document. You can't simply accept it. It could be an enemy deception. There have been many such deceptions. Mm. The Soviets had trained them how to do this, you know, plant documents, send bogus radio signals. And you can confuse the enemy. We worried about that, but we had an ace in the hole, didn't we? We had Vovan Ba. He was planted in the very place, the headquarters that had generated this document, and by damn, he confirmed its authenticity. This was manna from spy heaven. <laughs> Suddenly, we had what every spy wants. Mm. We had documentary evidence of what the enemy was going to do. And we had a human source right in the place that it generated the intelligence, the document. And we could corroborate the absolute truth and implications of this document. Mm. And what did that do? That persuaded Nixon we were on the path to the policy objectives he wanted to achieve, mm, which was mm. to get Americans out of Vietnam. What was the first thing he did in 1969? He intensified the secret bombing of Cambodia that had begun in 1965. Mm. The following year, he sent South Vietnamese forces into and American forces into Cambodia to wipe out the, the uh, 
the enclaves along the border where communist forces were refitting and recouping from the losses of 68. Okay. Mm. All of these activities blew the lid off of the anti-war movement in the United States. They coincided with the surfacing of the news, the My Lai massacre in 1968, that had taken place right on the tail end of the 68 offensives. Mm. But the news of it hadn't surfaced until just about 1960, late 69, 70. It also, this, this, these efforts to wipe out the sanctuaries in Cambodia, the supposed widening of the war, also occurred against the backdrop of the Kent State shootings in may of 1970 yeah yeah so what we had what we had we had the anti-war movement going crazy in the united states they were labeling nixon's policy of wiping out the sanctuaries which from an anti-war perspective was exactly what should have been done because it would hasten the withdrawal of u.s forces Mm. but nobody realized that nobody correctly uh articulated that from a policy standpoint. So the anti-war moon is going, movement is going bonkers. They're accusing Nixon of widening the war, of killing students and innocent Cambodians. And man, it was a crazy time in Vietnam. And it also made us in the CIA station feel that we were totally dis- detached from reality in the yeah. United States. Yeah. Because we said to ourselves, Jesus Christ, we're sending forces into Cambodia to achieve what the anti-war movement wants, which is to set up conditions for a U.S. withdrawal so the South Vietnamese could take over, so the North Vietnamese couldn't recoup their losses. That seemed to make eminent sense. But instead, the anti-war move was damning us all Mm. as warmongers, baby killers, student killers. It all became truly a nightmare. And um, it was it's very hard to articulate for someone who wasn't there how horrible it was. For instance, I, I would from time to time go and take R&R in Hong Kong. I went there right after the documentary on Woodstock was released yeah. and was in circulation. Uh, you know, the celebration that everybody uh, knows about where rock and roll came together with the anti-war movement for several days and had a hell of a good time. When I saw that, in Saigon, and I beg your pardon, in Hong Kong, I was sickened. I said, holy shoot, you're a bunch of white kids. And most of the people at Woodstock who were not on stage were white. Mm. They were draft dodgers. They were giving peace signs. They were, you know, wrestling in the mud with their girlfriends. And I said to myself, what the hell is going on here? Hell, no wonder you're there in the anti-war movement. They're having a great time. When I... When I returned to Saigon, we're in a situation where just a few miles outside of the city limits, and when I would go into a, a, a Pleiku, a Kantum province, to work with the Phoenix cadre, we were being shot at. Mm. No, and people were dying right and left, and it was impossible to factor in in any rational way the anti-war movement. And I said to myself, forget it. I'm just going to – they can have their fun and the strange thing is we became so insulated in Saigon. Remember, news arrived not by the Internet. There was none. It arrived two or three weeks later. Now, we saw Armed Forces Radio. We heard Armed Forces Television and Radio. But it carried news late, and certainly it didn't emphasize the anti-war movement. So for most of us, the anti-war movement was alien, not understood, 
and almost irrelevant to yeah. the way we thought in in Saigon. Well, one of the things that happened in um, during this period, 69, yeah. 70, was that um, I began debriefing Vovan by himself. I was brought in to sit in with him. Now, here was the, the most amazing man. I have to describe him a little bit for you. Mm. He, um, he would always arrive. Now, I'll back up a little bit. His American handlers, there was a CI officer in Tainan province who handled him. There mm. was a South Vietnamese counterpart who handled it. The South Vietnamese counterpart would meet with him regularly or would receive information from dead drops or live drops, that is, from handoffs in the streets and whatever. The Americans never met with him mm. in Tainan for the obvious reason. You can't have your spy operating inside the Communist Command meeting with white guys or black guys who are obviously Vietnamese. Yeah. So the, the only time we met with him, or I, as the supporting analyst, met with him, were doing during meetings in Saigon and safe houses in Saigon. And here's what would happen. Uh, we, he, for instance, this is one way we would get him to Saigon. He would go to a hospital in Tainan, mm. go into a back room. He would crawl on a gurney, pull a blanket over himself and play dead. Then special branch Vietnamese officers who didn't know who was on the gurney would pick it up, take it to an aircraft, dump it onto an uh, the, into the cargo bay, yeah. and he'd be dumped in Saigon as a dead man. Wow. He would then put on a disguise. Generally, uh, he would become disguised as a woman, uh, or he wore huge dark uh, Greta Garbo glasses. He had a wig that looked like it had been shorn from uh, the head of a tea girl in Saigon. Yeah. It was glossy black, absurdly uh, <laughs> incongru incongruous to him. Okay. And he would he would arrive, okay? And the first thing he would do, he'd expect obeisances from us, a little, you know, a few goodies or what have you. He loved Budweiser beer. That's because the Americans had dropped Budweiser along the Ho Chi Minh Trail system and never to slow down the infiltration. And the communists had become fond of it. <laughs> and he was one of them. That's pretty he also favored. Yeah. He favored. Salem cigarettes. Why is that? Because Ho Chi Minh favored Salem cigarettes. Mm. Uh, for the cadre, Ho used to smoke Bostos, which was a Vietnamese brand, but was sickening. You just nobody wanted to smoke Bostos. So Ho secretly in another pocket yeah. in his tunic kept Salem's. And he would whip them out and smoke them secretly. And if you were a double agent, pretending to be a good communist, you liked Salem cigarettes. <laughs> and so the next thing Vovon Ba would ask for is a Salem cigarette. Mm. And once that happened, and once he'd been paid obeisance to and preened a little bit, then he'd get down to business. And uh, so, so anyway, that was, that was the choreography that surrounded Vovon Ba and my interrogations with him. Now, how did he get back out of interest? Because it was very elaborate getting to Saigon. How did he get back? Same, same, same yeah, thing. Yeah. We, would, we would disguise him and we'd fly him back in. And by the way, we, we trained him in tradecraft mm. so that he had a secret radio. If he wanted to do a contact, mm. he would tap it three times. We'd know that he had something to deliver. Mm. Is uh, He would then either leave it in your proverbial dead drop, which mm. means a brick 
a space and a brick wall, or there would be an elaborate handoff. And his daughter attended the same Vietnamese school in Tainan province as the daughter of his Vietnamese case officer. Yeah. So the daughters would often, one of them would get on a motorbike and she would exchange surreptitiously a school bag with the other daughter. And that's how we get the message. Mm. Um, that's that w- w- how it would work. Vauvin Ba had a, uh, Ba had a photographic memory. He could look at a communist document and he could come back and recite it word for word. Wow. And so mm. th- this guy was so extraordinary and on and on. Anyway, so I'm in, I'm rocking and rolling, man. I'm de- meeting, meeting with and supporting our best agents, mm. our best operations. Uh, and meantime, something else happens. American forces who had been operating in Cambodia discovered a document that was almost important as the one I discussed before, Cosvin mm. Resolution 9. This document revealed that since 1967 and perhaps before, all supplies destined for communist forces in the Saigon area and the Delta of South Vietnam had arrived not through the Ho Chi Minh Trail system in Laos. They had been offloaded by junk mm. from junks into Sihanoukville in Cambodia, then conveyed overland into South Vietnam. Mm. Whoa, what a fantastic discovery. Well, yes, the problem was that a lot of U.S. military officers and CIA officers had built their careers as advocates of the bombing of the Ho Chi Minh Trail yeah, system yeah. on the, the assumption that that's the way we would stop the war in the South mm. and certainly keep the supplies to a minimum. Mm. And it turns out that was all wasted effort. The, the bombing did strike at reinforcements coming down the trail system. But in terms of the supply situation for the communists in Saigon and the Delta, the heart of the war effort, that came in by way of an, a system we hadn't even realized existed. Wow. Yeah, and It was so important. So a lot of a lot of South uh, CIA guys had mud on their faces mm. as a result of this. A lot of careers got ruined mm. because of this piece of intelligence. But it was incredibly important. Now we're moving forward. Vietnamization is taking place. We are doing away with the sanctuaries. In 1971, the South Vietnamese attempted a cross-border operation of their own. They penetrated Laos. Mm. And they were going after communist supply lines at a crossroads area known as Japan. Why was this operation important? It was just like any other interdiction effort, but for one thing, it went forward without U.S. participation. There were no U.S. advisors attached. Mm -hmm. There was no embedded U.S. armor or artillery. There was no, no U.S. aircraft flying cover. It was all a Vietnamese show. It was the first major test of Vietnamization, whether or not the South Vietnamese could hack it on their own, right? The invading forces went in. The weather turned against them, slowed their advance, giving the North Vietnamese time to swing major units into position to interdict them. And they did. It was a slaughter. And 
South Vietnamese soldiers came out clinging to the skids of helicopters. This was a premonition of what would happen in the last years of the last day of the war. Mm. But what it told us was the South Vietnamese weren't ready. Mm. It told us that Vietnamization hadn't worked. It drove a knife into American policy. And it also disrupted American intelligence for a way that's in a way that's hard to explain. But what it did was this. Having realized that the South Vietnamese weren't going to hack it, the U.S. policymakers decided that they had better up the hype to get aid poured into the coffers for the South Vietnamese, to get Congress to continue to throw aid at the South Vietnamese. And so they adopted as a mantra, Saigon can't survive without additional U.S. aid. Well, that's fine. But for one thing, it substituted for any real analysis of whether they could survive with aid. We never did any analysis. And given all the problems we had with reporting on the South Vietnamese anyway, but any real analysis to determine whether or not aid would have made any difference. I'm going to tell you in a little while it wouldn't. Yeah. But in any event, it meant that we were never analyzing our allies. We never took stock of our friends. We never bothered to ask ourselves whether they could hack it, even with endless USA. And so we blinded ourselves once again Mm, mm. to the things that we needed to know about the South Vietnamese. And and that was a situation in 1971. Uh, and by the way, there was one period in 1971 when Vauvan Ba, this great spy of ours, fell into under a cloud. Mm. Some CIA officers began wondering whether his reporting wasn't too good to be true. And they wondered if he was a triple double mm. Agent, mm. agent pretending to work for us against the communists while he was actually working for them yeah. against us. Yeah. Da, 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 you get it. Well, I was brought in to verify his bona fides. And I spent three days with him. And uh, that was one of the cases, instances where he arrived via the, the, the funeral or the, the dead man's gurney, et cetera, et cetera. I sat with him for three days with his Vietnamese case officer and with one of other American debriefed him. And to my way of thinking, determined that he was still pure gold. Mm. And I, in fact, Though I was a mid-level officer because I had this intelligence clearance, these clearances that enabled me to ask pointed questions. And uh, it wasn't because I was some genius or had any skill. In fact, just the contrary. But I was this session, I won't say I, but this session, this cross-examination of Ovenpa was instrumental in sort of keeping him alive. Mm. Thank God, because he remained critical. Now, Right after that session, I returned to CIA headquarters. Uh, Remember, I'm an analyst. I'm never an operative, even though I've gotten involved heavily now in in operations. When I returned to headquarters, my fluency with Vauvan Ba, this critical spy, the fact that I had actually dealt with him, that I knew a lot about his reporting, commended me. And I was selected to become the North Vietnam policy analyst 
for the Vietnam Task Force on the analytical side of the house. That's a big mouthful. Mm. But what it meant was I was in the unit of the CIA that wrote the president's daily brief mm. or provided the material mm. for those who did. Mm. So I'm in a position uh, incredible for such a young, inexperienced and stupid officer like me. I was in a position to feed to, first of all, to promote that uh, Vovan Ba's reporting mm. from firsthand knowledge that it was right on. I was the only analyst who had had both field duty and direct exposure to this primary agent of ours. Yeah. So I was able to put him front and center to the White House. Whoa. And during this period, 1971 into early 1972, Vovan Ba kept providing us intelligence. Yeah. He provided information that forecast the Easter offensive of 1972. In the summer of 1972, when Henry Kissinger was meeting secretly with late Octo in Paris and negotiating the Paris Peace Accord, Henry Kissinger wasn't telling the CIA or almost anybody else in the government what he was doing. But the communists were reporting what they knew was going on to their cadre in the field. <laughs> Vovan Bob mm -hmm. picked that up from cadre briefings and he brought it in to us. Yeah. So we found out through our best our best double agent what Henry Kissinger was doing in Paris. That's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm sitting here in this analytical unit at Langley, mm. the, the task force, and I begin to pick up this information. Mm. And I'll never forget, I wrote one Saturday a big piece for the White House, for the President's Daily Brief, that said, we have a breakthrough in Paris. Henry Kissinger was so pissed off <laughs> that we had second-guessed him that he ordered me removed from the task force. Oh, my God. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm suddenly a, a nomad at CIA headquarters. Uh, quite innocently, I said, holy crime. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I wasn't supposed to be reporting that. Mm. And when you put it into the president's daily brief, it's read by other people. So I had done the no-no. Kissinger went berserk. <laughs> George Carver, who was the special assistant, the director special assistant for Vietnam, had been very impressed with my work mm. with Vovan Ba. Mm. And so he said, I got a, I got a fallback plan for you, Frank. You're going to go to Saigon, back to Saigon, and you're going to become the chief interrogator for Nguyen Van Thai. And so I was sent back to Saigon in September of 1972 mm. to take on a task, which was one of the star tasks in the agency, to break the most important prisoner we had ever captured. I want to give you a little background mm. on Nguyen Van Thai. Nguyen Van Thai had been captured in, I believe, 1970. Yeah. He had been running operations into the Saigon area, and he was so important the communists were so upset with having lost him that they proposed a secret prisoner exchange offering several Americans they were holding if we would release Nguyen Van Thai to them. Well, what that did was to signal to us how important Nguyen Van Thai was. And the CIA said, no, 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 we're not giving him up. And to heck with these Americans having to stay with the communists as a result. Never mind. We're going to keep this guy. Mm. Nguyen Van Thai had never admitted who he was, but a woman who had worked with me and would work with me as my interpreter pulled a little trick on him. She took a photograph of him and showed him, showed it to other captives 
in the National Interrogation Center in Saigon. And one captive who wanted to buy defector status from it says, well, I can tell you using that photograph. <laughs> he says, that's Tu Trung, also known as Nguyen Van Tai. Yeah. And that's when we realized we had the mother load of captives. This guy, he had led the, the attack on the U.S. Embassy in 1968. Yeah, yeah. He had captured all of our spies in North Vietnam. He knew everything. And now, Frank Snap, junior spy, I'm being sent in yeah. to interrogate him. He, he reminded me of Carla in the John le Carre books a little bit, especially the way you described it. He was, he was he is precisely that. Mm. He was precisely that. He had risen in the party hierarchy in Hanoi by betraying his own father, who was not sufficiently revolutionary. You don't do that as a Vietnamese. So that was one of the things I used against him in the interrogation. Mm, mm. We had, by the time I got there, Nguyen Van Thai was living in a snow white room, a sterilized uh, isolation chamber. Mm. There were no windows to allow him to see the outside. He had become so disciplined that he could tell the time of day simply from the chemistry of his body. Um, and he had resisted um, the interrogation techniques of the only other American had dealt with him prior to my arrival. That guy had tried to argue communism with him. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get to him uh, emotionally. Mm. He had also been terribly, terribly tortured by the South Vietnamese jail keeps at the National Interrogation Center. I eliminated that immediately because there was no way, there was no way terror tactics were going to change the mind of this guy. No way arguing communist theory was going to change his mind. The way to do it was to make him so angry and confused that he would give away more than he meant to. He was pissed off that a young guy was being assigned as interrogator. Mm. That was an offense to him right away. He was contemptuous of me. He, th he later wrote in a memoir that I reminded him of some young movie star. What the <laughs> hell was I doing being assigned to him? Which movie star did you remind him of? I have no idea. Probably Rust Hat Tamblin or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, it was not a compliment. No. Really, not <laughs> so it wasn't Clint Eastwood then. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, yeah. so I adopted, I adopted uh, an interrogation technique I call the jump cut approach. Mm. Mm. I would interrogate him for hours. Now, he was in isolation. He had been suffering sensory deprivation. And first thing I did, by the way, was to change the times of his meal. So he received breakfast at midnight. So his internal clock was thrown off. He couldn't discipline himself the way he had in the past. And you may say that's torture. I would, I would probably concede that, uh, but it was not the physical torture. Mm. wasn't waterboarding, mm. all of which had been part of his repertoire in the past. But in any event, the jump start technique involved hitting him with a question, immediately going to another topic, another topic, another topic with no logical transition. And after three or four hours, his exhaustion would make it impossible for him to know whether or not he told me something or I just slipped it into yeah. the conversation initially. Yeah. And eventually he began telling me things, thinking that he had told me things. He confirmed what I threw at him. And much of what I was able to do, the, the reason I was able to program the interrogations this way was that I was still picking up good stuff from the communist command mm -hmm. via 
Vauban Pa. Mm. So I was using the best guy we had against the best prisoner we had. And I won't brag about it. Uh, Vauban Pa, who eventually wrote his own memoir of my interrogation, denies that I got any information from him. The CIA's official analysis said I had talked him into uh, a meaningful dialogue. Mm. Now, the ceasefire occurred. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. During my interrogation of Vauvan Ball, latter part of 1972, Henry Kissinger cleaned up the negotiations in Paris. Guess what? In October 1972, Vauvan Ball filed a new report. Now, I'm still doing my interrogations. So I'm hearing about this from the CIA station chief, the guy you worked with, Vauvan Ball, he mm. just filed something. <laughs> and what he'd said was, that Kissinger had just given away the bank to the North Vietnamese. He'd agreed to let the North Vietnamese keep their own forces yeah. in the South, 140,000. Wow. When Vauvan Ba filed this report, it was immediately slipped by his police handlers to, to President Nguyen Van Thieu. Thieu went bloody bonkers. It was the first time he knew mm, mm. that Kissinger had sold him out. Mm that he was going to leave North Vietnamese forces in the South. There was a reason for this, but leaving that aside, to immediately said, screw you, I'm leaving the talks. The North Vietnamese responded by saying, well, we're leaving the talks too. And the whole God-blessed thing was on the verge of collapse. Yeah. Kissinger and the White House decided to placate the South Vietnamese and serve a warning to the North Vietnamese by launching the Christmas bombing. So Vo Van Ba's reporting led directly to the most astounding last-minute development. It was the bombing of North Vietnam, which sent the anti-war movement into Frico, mm. the ninth mm. dimension. But this is how important Vo Van Ba was. Okay, after the ceasefire occurred, I sat down with my prisoner, Wen Van Tine. I said, you're going to be exchanged. That's part of the deal. He started trembling. He said, this is the happiest day of my life, blah, blah, blah. I know he would have loved to have killed me in the process. So I walked out of the interrogation center forever. All Americans were barred from the interrogation and all other such business. It was announced a South Vietnam show. I thought he was to be released. He wasn't released. The South Vietnamese kept him as collateral. They didn't consider him a prisoner of war. They considered him a political prisoner, blah, 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 blah. So until the last day of the war, he sat in that Snow White cell. Um, and I'll tell you a little story about what I thought had happened mm. and what did happen in the end later. But here I am. I step out of the interrogation room. I'm restored to the analytical branch in the CIA station. Mm. And man, I'm covering, I come in covered with metals. I've interrogated the highest-ranking captive we've had. The CIA station chief, Tom Pogar, mm. immediately had me begin writing all of his strategic estimates for Washington. I was the senior. No, I was a kid. <laughs> Jesus, I was probably 30 years old at the time. At 20. Wow, wow. But I was writing for the ambassador. I was I was delivering you know, the tablets from heaven, yeah, from the yeah. mount, <laughs> and I, it was heady stuff. And also... CIA station chief wanted me to spy on the new ambassador, Graham Martin, because he was a, he was a son of a gun mm. and everybody mistrusted him. He was a headstrong old guy and he, he was a North Carolinian like me. He spoke with a Southern accent like me. 
And so Polgar was an old Hungarian thought. I'm going to put these two guys together. Frank, I want you to tell me what the ambassador is doing. Get very close to him. He had me appointed the ambassador's special uh, intelligence briefer. Mm. I handle all of Martin's, almost all of Martin's senior or uh, most important briefings. I brief the mission council session. Mm. And every time I did, every time I did, I would insert Vauvan Ba. Martin loves spycraft. He really wanted to be a spy, this ambassador. Yeah, yeah. And so he he loved hearing about this spy. Tell me more about this, you know, bring him into, into Saigon on a stretcher. Tell me, Frank, I love it. <laughs> he And I spent a lot of time with the ambassador, and I eventually became a very serious suitor to his daughter. Mm. So you're talking about a, a young man who is at the very center of things. My rank, my level in the hierarchy tells you nothing about the access I had. I had direct access to the ambassador. I sat with him. I had dinner. I was spying on him for the CIA station chief. I was the CIA station chief's go-to man for any analysis. And as a reward for all of this, (laughs) undeserved reward, I should say, I was given two new key assignments, which enabled me to make even more use of the intelligence from Vauvan Ba. I was given responsibility for handing the most important defector we had from Cosvin. I was chaperoning him, making him feel that he was at home. This defector had been a radio communications officer for Cosvin, the Central Communist Command, where Vauvan Ba was operating. So <laughs> I'm with the guy who knew all the secrets from one side. <laughs> this is the, my radio guy, the defector. And I'm talking to and having getting reports from the, our triple agent, mm. our double agent, I should say, <laughs> inside the Communist Command. You couldn't ask for more. What this defector told us yeah. was breathtaking. He told us that the communist strategy for the ceasefire was to create a third Vietnam along the border of South Vietnam and mm-hmm. Cambodia and Laos, where they would establish their own front government, the provisional revolutionary government, so that they could engage in political combat with the Saigon regime. They were digging in for the long haul. They hoped to win eventual victory, but this was a new step in the political struggle, setting up this quarter, mm. corridor mm. along the border. They could also send more easily supplies and troops uh, and supplies and troops south through this corridor. So this was critical information. In fact, Kissinger sent word to the Saigon station. This was hugely important for handling the ceasefire situation. Okay. The second thing that happened was that because of I, I was so knowledgeable of the information coming in from Vauvan Ba. Mm-hmm. I was appointed to an operation which is still so classified, I can't give you the details. Suffice it to say that it plugged right into Hanoi. Yeah. And I call it the Hanoi pipeline. I was instrumental in this pipeline. I programmed it. I debriefed the principals who were running it. Mm. And I was able to do the most incredible triangulation using Mm. Vauvan Ba's reporting Mm. And what I was getting from Hanoi. So I was, again, in another catbird seat. And I want to emphasize to your viewers, this is not braggadocio on my part, because I didn't think it deserved any of it and was not qualified to do this. It simply was because by sheer accident, 
I had been given clearances that gave me access to a vast amount of intelligence that very few other people, certainly at my rank, mm. had, had access to. And as a result of this, I was in the right places at the right time in touch with the right people, the best agents, the uh, channels that could get me heard up and down the hierarchies. Okay. So I want to flash forward now mm. and um, take us to the second year of the ceasefire, the second year of no war, no peace. The summer of 1974, we were getting reporting from Vauban, Vauban Bond, other uh, assets, and there were a few others, nothing of Vauban Bond's importance, but still it's nice to have echoes. And we received information that the communists had decided they would not try to achieve ultimate victory until 1979, okay? Mm -hmm. There was struggle going on inside Vietnam. There was great concern inside North Vietnam that the Chinese were going to try to outflank them by establishing a beachhead in Cambodia. And Cambodia, by the way, was a mess. Uh, the Sihanouk in 1970 had been ousted by Lan An, our guy, and we had established a foothold there. But it was very dicey. The Khmer Rouge were much larger than anybody thought. And, uh, and so it was, it was a crazy situation. Anyway, th this information that the communists were going to extend their political struggle in 1979 mm. was very welcome. Mm. Okay. Because we thought, well, somehow we could cause this non-ceasefire because both sides were pushing and shoving, trying to acquire new territory, despite paying lip service yeah. to the ceasefire agreement. Well, all of this was, we were trucking along and planning for the future. And then lightning struck. What was it? Watergate, Watergate, yeah, yeah. Watergate, the Watergate investigations destroyed Richard Nixon, August, 1974. He resigned and that changes everything. The North Vietnamese sat back and thought, holy smoke. And this is what we're getting in our reporting. Mm. Holy smoke, the madman is dead. He's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Therefore, we've got new opportunities on the battlefield. And they began to push and shove to identify soft spots in South Vietnamese defenses and soft spots in U.S. policy that would enable them to progress. I met directly with Vo Van Ba mm. about this change in strategy. And he explained to me the nuances. He said, this isn't really a new strategy, but what we're talking about is an exploratory mm. effort. And it's going to go on for about six months. Well, in early 1975, the communists decided to go for a little bit higher target. They seized for the first time since 1972 a province capital to see if we would react, mm. if the United States would reintroduce American forces. And of course, your viewers know when the ceasefire had occurred in 73, the last U.S. troops had gone. So they were nowheresville. But the communists were always worried that we were going to send them back. They had no idea yeah. that that was simply impossible. Okay, so here we are. They've captured this province capital. Mm. They wonder if we're going to react. President Q wonders if we're going to react. We don't. We don't. We don't. And at that point, the leaders in Hanoi, Lays on the party first secretary, a hardliner with Soviet support, 
and who had also been close to the Chinese, who had always believed there would be a general uprising in the South mm-hmm. to, to support him. He had borrowed this from Castro. He'd seen what Castro had done in Cuba. So the whole myth of the, the general uprising, he had bought into. Yeah. And he says to his cadre, we're going to go for broke. The road to Saigon is open. The Americans are holding back. The new president, Gerald Ford, he's tricky. But we think we can push this offensive this year to the point of a sudden kill. We're going to stay ready for it. And that's what they did. Mm. That was the beginning of the final offensive. March 1975. March 1975, they made their first move. They struck at the southern part of the highlands. And they did so without warning and without Vauvan Ba giving us a forewarning. Because what had happened was they were begin- They had just sent their primary commander, General Zung, south. Yeah. He yeah. wasn't talking to Kazan. He wasn't telling Kazan, we're going to do this. He was carrying his headquarters in his brain. He struck the southern part of the highlands. He seized a rubber town where all the rubber plantations were located. Bam, he took it. Boom, takes it, takes it. A spy in Tu's entourage, a communist spy, then telegraphed to Zung what Tu was going to do. Tu panicked. Without telling the Americans, he decided to withdraw all forces from the highlands so he could redeploy them elsewhere for better use to defend Saigon, etc. He also gave conflicting orders to his commander in the northernmost provinces. What happened when the spy this is a communist spy inside the government. Mm, mm. He tells the NVA commander what they're going to do. And the NVA commander immediately swings his forces out of Bamitut into the central part of the region. And he intercepts the withdrawing South Vietnamese army. They're pulling out of the highlands, heading for the coast. Boom, he hits them on a roadway strung out between the highlands and the city of Nha Trang and routes them destroys them. In the meantime, in the northern part of the country, the communists struck across the DMZ. They brought heavy artillery, as they had in 1972. Boom, boom, boom. There's no air, U.S. air to support them, South Vietnamese. The South Vietnamese forward units fell back, and they fell back into their families because for morale purposes, families of soldiers Mm. in the northern part of the country had been based right next to the forward units. And so when communists struck, Arvin troops, South Vietnamese troops, backed up into bivouacs containing their own families, and that completely demoralized them. So the whole South Vietnamese army in that area fell apart. Within the next three weeks, half of the South Vietnamese army and half of South Vietnam was lost to rampaging North Vietnamese Mm, forces. mm. So we now, April 1975, this is a month before the collapse. A communist spy, communist spies have given the North Vietnamese an incredible edge. Okay. Here's the situation in Saigon. On April 3rd, just a few days after the fall of Nha Trang, Da Nang, I meet with a representative of the Hanoi Pipeline. General Wayan and his group had just arrived from Washington as fact finders for President Ford Mm. to see what the hell was going on here and to see if anything could be done. 
I meet with the pipeline people. They tell me, with WAN's representative sitting in on the briefing, the North Vietnamese are going for broke. They're on a blood scent, and they're not going to stop for anything. Boom. Okay. I come away. WAN goes back to Washington. He tells President Ford what he has heard and what he's learned. Mm. But he says that additional aid might save the South Vietnamese because there was a logic to it. Yeah. The thought was that we were on top of the rainy season. It arrives in May. It's just three, four, three and a half weeks away. Yeah. The hope was that the rains would slow the North Vietnamese advance, give the South Vietnamese stragglers yep. who were coming in from the northernmost provinces time to reconstitute themselves into new units or old units and time to rebuild the South Vietnamese army. Okay. So when we should have begun emergency contingency planning, there was this notion that the, there was time still. There was time. Even the, the defense attache's office in Saigon said, oh, yeah, well, the communists won't strike until June. Yeah. So we've got plenty of time. They said, oh, they're going to strike. All right. We're in terrible shape. All right. But the time is on our side. And Ambassador Martin believed them. He believed them. He was receiving word from diplomatic sources, mm. French diplomats in Saigon. And my CIA station chief was receiving the same messages from Hungarian diplomats in Saigon mm. who told them the communists would negotiate if Nguyen Van Thieu was removed and replaced with a neutral who was acceptable to Kanoi. Okay, mm. I say, this is nuts. This goes against everything I understood and have understood and what the Hanoi pipeline has told me. Yeah. They're not going to stop for anything. Yeah. So. On April 8th, I am overjoyed. I have sent in requirements for Vovan Ba. He sends in a report. I don't meet with him. He sends a report that is the most, most breathtaking report he'd ever provided. Number one, he confirmed what I had learned from the Hanoi pipeline. The communists are on a blood scent, but they're going to circle encircle Saigon and be ready to strike before the rainy season. That means before... Three weeks from now, they're going to be hitting Saigon, yeah. okay? But he gave us even something more critical. He said, the communists will treat all the talk of negotiations as an opportunity to sow discord. They will not negotiate a settlement to this war. They're going to, they're not, they tried that before, baby. Mm. They've gone through the Geneva Accords. They've gone through the ceasefire. They were cheated, they believe, of their just desserts. They're not going to go back to the negotiating mm. table, mm. but they'll trick us into believing they might. That's what Vovan Ba told us. That was his critical information. I go to the ambassador. I say, look, we're in trouble. We've got to start planning for an evacuation. I wasn't the only one, but that was the news. My station chief said, no, nah, I don't think so, Frank. The ambassador said, no. Nah. I said, Mr. Ambassador, Vovan Ba, remember him, your favorite spy? He's telling us this. No, nah, Frank, I've got better intelligence, he said. Uh, he's talking about the diplomatic scuttlebutt. Yeah, yeah. And so he refuses to plan for an evacuation. In the meantime, all these surplus Americans have come out of the provinces that have been overrun in military region one, the northern part of the country, military region two. They've got to leave. They're just surplus Americans wandering around Saigon with nothing to do. Mm. So they're, 
the defense attaches off the Pentagon began providing charter aircraft and booking uh, empty cargo planes for them to take Americans out. The Americans won't leave unless they can take Vietnamese. So mm. they begin uh, their Vietnamese friends, girlfriends, wives, what have you. They've been smuggling them onto these flights. Martin goes bananas, bananas, <laughs> yeah. because he says, no, we can't evacuate anybody because the chaos will destroy the control conditions we need for negotiations. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah. And my station chief is say, saying the same thing. So you have to understand it's a little bit complicated, but it comes down to this. Mm. The idea that there might be a negotiated settlement is an antithetical to the idea of an invest of a, an evacuation mm. because an evacuation creates disruption chaos you have to begin moving out principal political figures in saigon military figures and that causes an un unraveling of the army a further yeah. unraveling yeah. and you can't have that if you're trying to negotiate so as long as you're thinking negotiations negotiation you're not going to support an evacuation that was the critical dichotomy that was the source of the paralysis in mm. saigon mm. okay okay i am desperate as I, we, we know there is one option for getting large numbers of Vietnamese out of the country. I had estimated we owed a debt to a million. President Ford said at least 145,000, I believe that was the number he was saying. And we could have done it if we had authorized an overland exodus to the sea from Saigon to the coastal city of Vung Tau, yeah. picking up the escape escapees on the beaches. You had to do it on in time because the communists were moving so fast. Mm -hmm. They were about to interdict the highway to the coast. Anyway, so I go back to Vo Van Ba. I meet with him directly. I met him in Saigon. I sat with him. He is sitting. We go through the same routine, Budweiser, Salem cigarettes. And I say to him, okay, Bring me up to date on communist planning. He told me this. He said, the communists are going to be in Saigon by Ho Chi Minh's birthday. That's the 20th of May. That means they have to be in Saigon effectively mm. by the 1st of May. Mm. They're going to beat the rainy season. That's That was then two weeks from now. Yeah. Okay. And he said, and I said, well, wait, wait, wait. Tell me about negotiations. Absolutely not. He said, won't do it. They'll continue to deceive you into believing they're going to be negotiations. And he said more than that, Frank. He called me Frank now. Frank. <laughs> he also he treated me. He called me the guy in the blue shirt because I always <laughs> wore blue shirts anyway. So I'm, I'm the kid, but yeah. I'm still, he's talking to me. And, and he, he says, we're using an interpreter. By the way, remember, I don't speak Vietnamese. Yeah. I only speak French. And Vauvenba speaks no French that I knew of. Uh, so anyway, I'm getting the message. He says, more than that, the communists are going to bring air and artillery to bear on Saigon's air base, Tonsonu. Mm -hmm. What? I said, wait a minute. You said air? They're going to bring their air force in? Yes. And he said they are setting up radars on Black Virgin Mountain in Tainan province to assist with this. Well, what, what is that? If you walk away from that, what's your first thought? Oh, my God. We're, if we try to mount an airlift, they're going to be on us, baby. And if we try to use the airfield, we're going to be screwed. Mm. I come back. I have this report. I go to the station chief, Tom Pogar. I say, here it is. Got to send it to Washington. He says, I don't think so. Wow. I said, what? You're not going to send this report to Washington? And I, I go to Martin. I said, told him the same thing. Martin said, 
nah, you're out of date, Frank. Uh, there's going to be a negotiated settlement. The French are telling us this and so forth. Um, I said, look, let, let me send this report at least out mm. through operational channels. That was a sewer pipe in the agency. And I did it. When that report hit Washington, it sent off skyrockets. It convinced Admiral Geiler, who was a commander-in-chief for the Pacific, U.S. forces in the Pacific, to ramp up planning for an emergency airlift. It prompted Kissinger to order Martin to draw down the Americans to a point that only a few would be in Saigon mm. if an emergency airlift became available. It prompted Martin, it caused Kissinger to demand of Martin that he reconfigure the embassy grounds to receive large helicopters, okay? So Vauvan Ba, all of us who escaped that last day by helicopter, owe a debt, an existential debt to Vauvan Ba. Mm. But Martin refused to accept what Vauvan Ba said of negotiations. He insisted on pursuing the option of negotiating. And precondition was get rid of Nguyen Van Thieu. Martin asked me and the chief intelligence officer for the defense attaché's office to write a, a doomsday report that would terrorize Nguyen Van Thieu into resigning. Yeah. I did so. Martin took it to him, persuaded Thieu to resign. Thieu resigned in favor of his vice president, looking towards bringing in a neutralist to replace both of them. And on April 25th, I was asked to drive to to smuggle him to Tonsonudea base, to his black flight out of the country. I was his chauffeur, and it was one of the most dangerous operations I was ever involved in because everybody wanted to kill this guy, including any American with him. Uh, Nguyen Cao Ki, his political rival, wanted yeah. to kill him. Yeah. The communists wanted to kill him. And so what we did was to use the ambassador's vehicle, change the license plate, put on new set of license yeah. plates, took down the flag stanchions. I was in the front seat, armed to the teeth. She was in the back seat. He was drinking. He had been drinking. He was <laughs> wiped out. And I was I identified myself as a high-class chauffeur and American hmm. colleague of mine, CI colleague, General Timmies, who had worked with Chu for ages, was sitting with him. Chu was crying. We made it. We mm. made it. I, in mm. fact, we made it to the blacked-out airfield. It was so blacked out that I nearly ran over the ambassador in the CIA <laughs> station chief because I couldn't <laughs> see anything. Is this the days before night vision? Chu <laughs> is weeping, and he grabs my hand mm. as he gets out and says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I... I kept thinking, what the hell is he thinking before? I mean, 58,000 Americans dead, what mm. what? He got out, ran up the the ramp to the aircraft. Mm. Martin grabbed the ramp and yanked it away as if he was breaking the umbilical that had tied us to Saigon for so long. I said, Mr. Ambassador, can I help you? He said, no, Frank, no, Frank, it's over, it's over. Um, but it wasn't over. He continued to pursue the idea of a negotiated settlement. Yeah. The defense attaché's office aided him in this delusion uh, because several of its officers who were involved are involved in an operation that was a relic of the Paris Accords. They were talking, believe it or not, even now to the North Vietnamese mm. about missing in action prisoner, uh, missing in action uh, issues, Americans who've been lost in the mm. war. And they mm. learned from their counterparts on the very day I took to to the airport. 
They were told by their North Vietnamese counterparts, the embassy can negotiate its status after a new ceasefire. This confirmed Martin in his delusions. Kissinger had queried the Soviets. They screwed him over and led him to believe there was chance for negotiations. Mm, mm. So there was no further planning for an exodus to the sea or anything else on the day before the final day, mm. the neutralists who we thought was acceptable to the communists took power. Mm. Big man, an old general. The moment he took power, the monsoons arrived. The rains began dappling the, the roof of the National Assembly building. And at the same moment, North Vietnamese aircraft struck Saigon. Wow. Destroying the airfield. Mm, Just yeah. as Vo Van Ba had predicted, that night the North Vietnamese began bombarding the air base in earnest. Just as Vo Van Ba had predicted. How did you feel in that moment? Well, <laughs> I feel I felt not vindicated. I felt heartbroken. Mm. I had tried after meeting with that last time to get word to everybody I could that despite the ambassador stonewalling, we were finished. I, I sent word back channel to friends in Washington to go to Kissinger. Some of them came to Saigon to rescue their Vietnamese friends. Yeah. So the scuttlebutt was it was over. And because of Ovan Ba, we had helicopters ready to go. Mm. But, but. We had no master list in the embassy the final day, April 29th, 1975, of the Vietnamese who deserved to be evacuated. It was every man and woman for themselves mm. that last mm. day. Whoever could be snuck onto any helicopter, they got out, and the others got left behind, including a girlfriend of mine and a child she told me was her own. Now, mm. A lot of a lot of Vietnamese women were claiming suddenly to have American children, mm. but she didn't get out, and I believe she killed yeah. herself and the child. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So the it was simple chaos. Mm. Morning of the last day, Martin still wasn't ready to go for helicopters, and insisted on viewing the runways himself at Tonsonu. He determined that they were unusable, and the helicopters were ordered in. In the meantime, Air America choppers, which were CIA airline choppers, began picking people around the city and, and ferreting them to the, the fleet. Mm. And we began using them to try to pick up agents and others who were waiting at designated spots. And we were receiving massive messages begging for help. But it was too late. Yeah. There was no evacuation. And the horror is we had the intelligence that could have made it better. And given us forewarning. Now, what happened to Vauvan Ba? Mm. Remained behind. He was quickly identified, exposed by an American CIA colleague of mine. Oh, and captured mm. and interrogated. He was rolled up and he was incarcerated by the communists and hung himself by a belt. Nguyen Van Tai, my old prisoner, mm. he managed to talk his way out of being killed by his. Vietnamese jailers. He told them that if they spared his life, he would spare theirs when his brethren arrived in Saigon. Mm. And he did. So although I thought he had been killed, mm. 
and wrote that in my initial memoir of the war. I updated my memoir later to show that he hadn't. And mm. Bovin Bob, because of my interrogation, never was was not rehabilitated. Mm. It was believed that he had given away secrets to me, and he spent the better part of 20 years trying to regain the the status he had had with his comrades. Mm. And one way he tried to do it was by interrogating the Vietnamese woman who had been my interrogator, my assistant in the mm. interrogation. Yeah, She'd been left behind yeah. and she was interrogated by late Octo and Win Van Tai. So all there were all these ironies. I went back to CIA headquarters, tried to prompt an after action report so that the government would be shamed, our government shamed into rescuing Vietnamese left behind. Mm. Didn't work. Everybody wanted to forget Vietnam. Mm. So I quit and wrote a memoir of what had taken place in hopes of galvanizing support for Vietnamese abandoned. Mm. And um, the rest is sort of bad legal history. I was prosecuted by the government. And even now, the precedent in the case, which I lost, is being used against John Bolton. Yeah. Memoir. Yeah, yeah, yes. Your name came up in a lawfare podcast just recently when they were discussing the John Bolton book, and uh, yeah, uh, Snap versus the U.S. government, or is it the U.S. government versus Snap? Yeah, yeah. Well, it works. Both, it works both ways. Yeah, because I challenged government, <laughs> challenged, and uh, but uh, anyway, yeah. So <laughs> surprisingly, I became a byword, another name for fascistic impulses towards censorship <laughs> so <laughs> it's not a happy ending to the story no no like what we're doing connect with us on twitter at dry cleaner cast support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast patreon subscriber today go to patreon.com slash dry cleaner cast that's patreon.com slash dry cleaner cast I know this is probably a terrible question, but was the Vietnam War winnable? When I arrived in 1969, it wasn't whether the war was mm. winnable. In fact, it wasn't whether or not the war was moral that was even relevant. It was whether we could get the hell out of the place, get our soldiers out of, the, out of there without their being mm. stabbed in the back. That was the challenge to us all. And seldom to, did I mm. sort of muse on whether or not this thing was moral. I was stuck with it. My job was to generate intelligence that would help us get out. I did a lot of things in the war that I wasn't proud of, including my dealings with this prisoner in solitary confinement. I didn't allow him to be tortured, but I didn't take him out of isolation. Yeah. And many people consider that unforgivable. And I felt that one of the things that redeemed my performance and the CIA's performance was our ability to get at the truth and get it back to Washington where it would make a difference. Mm. That seldom happened. But that was, I would say, the rationale for hanging in there. You always believe that if you just hung in there and played along to get along, mm. you might eventually accumulate enough political chits to be able to make a difference tomorrow. The problem is in Vietnam, tomorrow never came. 
and you were always making moral comp- compromises along the way yeah. and that was that was horrible one of the one thing that happened to me that helped clarify for me the question of whether the war was ever winnable happened in 1991 i went back to vietnam with a bbc camera crew and we visited the old communist command up in the the uh, uh, black virgin mountains area of Tainan yep. province. I'll never forget I walked in this cave. It was a, a, a an altar with just sticks burning and all of a sudden all these old cadre walked out of the jungle in their in their black pajamas with their ribbons on their chest and I began talking with them through an interpreter and they expressed to me puzzlement that the Americans in 1969 hadn't bombed the dikes in North Vietnam. They said if that had happened the bombing would have brought the war to a standstill and postponed indefinitely their ultimate victory because they were on the ropes in 1969. Yeah. And they said, you know, you Americans were so uptight but that's that's how it translated. Mm. They said if if this had been us, we would have bombed your dikes. We would have and we I said to them, you know why we didn't? Because the Pentagon estimated that the civilian casualty toll from the bombing of the dikes in the north would have been so hideous the moral outrage so terrible we'd mm. never recover mm. i said you americans you know never bothered us we would have done it and that was a stunning revelation to me mm. because from their standpoint they couldn't understand why we hadn't seized the advantage which they would have seized had they been in their position and i think that goes to ironically the great american handicap in vietnam this will become as a surprise to many of my any warmer friends but and many critics of the war we weren't ruthless enough from the communist standpoint they would have been more ruthless mm. we couldn't go that far and so ironically it was uh, a different kind of morality that prevented us from going to the mat as the communists would and did because they burn through one or two generations three generations of revolutionaries to win that war mm-hmm. i salute them their dedication was amazing but it was a dedication we couldn't share and that's why that war was never winnable on terms we would have recognized as victory it mm-hmm. wasn't and we just couldn't go down the route they followed and we didn't have the we didn't have the built-in commitment to do that and by the time the war ended so many of the myths that had driven us into the war the idea of monolithic communism whatever all that was breaking down frank in in your opinion what lessons can be learned from the war the lessons of vietnam are fairly easy to grasp one lesson never get into bed or a mm. foxhole unless you know your ally your friend or your proxy because there are unknown weaknesses made to feature and that's exactly what happened in South Vietnam we didn't know the Vietnamese well enough to know exactly what their breaking point was or whether or not they could survive with any further USA that was a horrible a horrible mistake so i always tell friends lesson number 1 from Vietnam know your friends secondly yeah. secondly this one has been loudly shouted by us military experts on the war never go to war in a place 
where there are sanctuaries or infiltration routes which the enemy can use to recoup their losses at will. Hmm. Um, that was a problem in Vietnam, the Ho Chi Minh Trail complex through Laos and the overland sea landing routes through Cambodia kept the communist forces supplied with materiel and manpower down the Ho Chi Minh Trail system indefinitely. Hey, it's a major problem in Afghanistan where the border areas in Pakistan serve as a kind of Ho Chi Minh trail yeah. complex where anybody who wants to assist ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban can do so. And the northern borders of Syria similarly provide gateways for any number of mischief makers there. So you've got to be able to insulate your borders. That sounds obvious in retrospect, but it was crazy. It was not a concept that sort of registered Certainly on the anti-war movement in the United States, the, mm. the thought was, you know, no, no, you can't widen the war into Laos and Cambodia because that's terrible. It expands the war. In fact, it's the only ticket to ending the war. And that was a hard lesson to learn, but it is key today. Another, another lesson of that war is that you should never go to war. And this is so trite, it's, it's almost embarrassing to repeat, unless you have the American people on your side. More importantly, unless you have Congress in the know about what it's funding and what it's supporting. You know, I have often felt that it's too bad that the Paris Peace Agreement of 1973, which ushered in the final phase of the war, the ceasefire and what have you, it's too bad it wasn't a treaty which would have required two-thirds approval of Congress, because if that had happened, Kissinger would have had to say to everybody, look, I've made secret commitments to the North Vietnamese of reconstruction aid. I've made commitments to the South Vietnamese of open-ended assistance. And Congress would have been at least in a position to say nay. But what happens was that they continued to be surprised when these secret commitments surfaced and they were asked to, to vote open-ended aid without appreciating that Kissinger had promised this to one side or another. That was absolutely awful. So you, you have to, if you're going to such a war, into such a war, you have to let Congress know and the American people what's expected of them. I think, too, Vietnam taught us the pitfalls of any counterinsurgency strategy aimed mm. at winning hearts and minds mm. uh, of the host country. You know, Pacification, which was the hearts and minds game in Vietnam, uh, often brought peace to certain villages and hamlets, which could be well defended and easily uh, underwritten by American aid. But it also set up tensions with the central government mm. because the guys in Saigon, the Thieu government, whoever it might be, the GM government before them, were constantly worried that those happy villagers out in province X would become too independent, too beholden to the CIA bagman it handed out money and not responsive enough to their own central authority. And the central authorities, the guys in Saigon, paranoid about this and reacted by canceling village elections and installing top-down bureaucracies of corrupt middlemen who were answerable only to Saigon. Mm. And that meant that pacification had this perverse effect of stimulating systemic corruption. 
it set up centrifugal forces that rather than contributing to nation building, actually worked against it because it created such tensions between the localities that were pacified and the central government. The same thing happened in Iraq. General Petraeus went in, he pacified the Sunni uh, uh, minority, the former, former Ba'athists who worked for Saddam Hussein. And what happened? The, the Shiites in Baghdad became totally paranoid that they were going to be facing a U.S.-backed faction that they couldn't control. So nobody was building a nation. And there were these centrifugal forces at work that had driven the country of South Vietnam apart, still working in Iraq. You know, Vietnam also pointed us and a potential adversaries in the direction of future warfare. And I, this is really a little granular, but, you know, the Viet Cong learned some important lessons very early on. First of all, they learned how to neutralize American helicopters. American helicopters, when they're about to move in on a target, sort of tilt up, their bellies are exposed. The communists realized in, at, at, at back, I think it was 1963, that if you fire an AK-47 at a chopper at just that particular point, you could bring it down. And they used that tactic again and again mm. to neutralize the effectiveness of choppers. Second lesson they learned, which neutralized the effectiveness of U.S. air power, including jets and helicopters. The, and this really began to come into the communist consciousness with the Yadrang Valley and other campaigns of mid-1960s. They realized if they moved right up against American battle lines, they could make it impossible for the American defenders to call in air support because the ordnance from the jets and the choppers would land on American troops. So air support became far less effective as reinforcement for American troops on the ground. The communists used that. That was one of the ways they were able to stay in the game and to minimize what was for the Americans the supreme advantage, and that was air power. And I think our adversaries in the Middle East, I know they have in Iraq and Afghanistan, have learned that lesson. They have learned how to neutralize American air power. On a more positive note, mm. Vietnam inspired at least, you know, aspirational limitations on war by presidential fiat, the imperialist presidency gone wild. War Powers Act 1973 passed, uh, and it still is in effect. It still requires congressional approval if combat troops are to be committed to hostilities beyond 60 days. Now, workarounds have occurred in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that war is authorized through sustaining congressional re resolutions, not declarations of war. But at least the War Powers Act stands as a beacon for the way things ought to be. And hopefully in more reasonable times after the Trump administration is gone, Congress will begin to tidy up the, the way we operate in wartime. It's yeah. about time. We've got to do it. Yeah. Something else, Vietnam and assassinations. There mm. was a lesson there for us. Um, after Vietnam, President Ford and subsequent chief executives agreed to provide wit written warnings, findings, uh, I should say, written findings. Uh, whenever they decided to order up targeted killings or assassinations. It didn't abolish these, mm. but it established a kind of accountability that minimized 
presidential incentives to opt for assassinations. Now, part of the current drone program is governed by these old executive decrees and orders. For instance, uh, CIA drone operations require all sorts of findings and presidential approvals, a paper trail. Mm. Uh, ironically, not so much Pentagon drone programs, and they're used more often for this very reason. They're not subject to the same kind of oversight. But in any event, the leg one of the legacies of Vietnam was that whatever happens when you, you're out to target kill somebody, you're out to assassinate them, there should be constraints on executive power. Now, uh, the drone program is a legacy of one of the most important and controversial programs in Vietnam, and that's the Phoenix operation. Hmm. That was a kill uh, gambit created in 1964, around about that time, and it fell, finally fell under CIA control. And we would go out and we would capture or kill enemy uh, leaders. It was, in theory, it was designed to save the lives of American troops by honing, honing in tape or taking a sniper approach to the enemy. The mm. problem was, as everybody knows, the intelligence was never good enough to enable us to identify the right target targets. So the yeah. wrong targets were often killed, yeah. innocent, innocent people. I'll never forget in 1971, I believe it was back in I was back at CIA headquarters. William Colby, director of the CIA, went before Congress and he said, we have, through the Phoenix program, eliminated something like 20,000 communist operatives over the past two or three years. And the problem with that estimate was that our calculations as to the size of that same cadre network mm. had not shrunk by mm. 20,000. Indeed, it had grown. So somebody was getting killed, but it just wasn't the right target. Yeah. It wasn't Viet Cong. And I had a chilling revelation, and I actually wrote a memo and sent it up the line to Colby's office. And I said, I just come back from my first tour in Vietnam, blah, blah, blah. I worked on this. And sir, we can't square these figures. You can't say that we're killing the enemy. Dead silence. Yeah. Never got a response. But ever after, I remained skeptical of the Phoenix but, but it is a model for the targeted killing that is now the raison d'etre of the drone program. Mm. It's a model for that program. Mm. And from better awards, it's being in all it's being used on all asymmetrical battlefronts around the world, all over the Middle East, as we know. Now, a lot of Americans rightfully condemn the drone program and its targeted killing. And, and that's because, as with Phoenix, the intelligence is often too imprecise to ensure against collateral damage, the yeah. killing of innocents. That's terrible. But grudgingly, and boy, have I had arguments about this, grudgingly, I think, still, the drone program has a virtue. It mm. gives us an option between doing nothing mm and sending in ground forces as we did in Vietnam. Mm. And having some option in between is a slight improvement mm. on the way we wage war. I think that it would no one wants to repeat Vietnam, the Vietnam of the mid-1960s, where we sent in finally uppwards of 500,000 American, 500, American troops on the ground. Mm. Um, 
it, 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 you don't want that. You want to hold back from that option. Yeah. And so I hate to say it, and it, it, it pains me to say it, mm. but the drone programs giving us the intermediate option, the selective targeting option, keeps us from going whole hog. And I hope that oversight mechanisms will be strengthened. It's a long, delayed uh, response to the lessons of Vietnam, mm. but it's an important one. Mm. With critics of the drone program, a lot of them, I think, would rather we did nothing. But what would be kind of the cost if, if nothing was done? Well, it, here you go. I mean, you have a lot of myopic people at the top who believe the war on terror has to be waged to the last terrorist. Mm. You have to argue that point and say, no, can't be done. Mm. There are situations which I think most people would agree you might want to take out an adversary. I do not believe that the Soleimani killing that took place in Iraq, he was the uh, government official of Iran who wound up getting zapped as well along, the, along with several of his comrades mm, mm. when he landed in Iraq to consult with some of his militia forces there. Uh, and I don't think you could have justified that under any standard. Mm. Uh, that was an, an official of a, a foreign government, no matter how hostile. And so what you did was to take it beyond the killing of a subterranean operative, which he wasn't, mm. to the killing of an official of an adversarial government. And that's really dangerous territory. And he posed, the standard was, look, you've got to be able to prove that a target like that poses an immediate threat to American lives. That mm. was not at all possible. So that was just off the books. That was impossible and should be condemned. But I think there are instances where you might want to take out an Osama bin Laden, mm. you might want to send in drones or make a surgical special operation strike. And uh, but you just want to make sure, here's the sine qua non. You've got to have the intelligence to do it uh, as you intend mm. and to minimize the collateral damage, which is a horrible term for civilian and bystander casualties. Mm. And I know this sounds all very theore theoretical and boring, but I, it, I guess my problem is I experienced too much of the random violence of Vietnam to believe that you can and just sit back and hope it doesn't happen mm. again. You've mm. got to have some way of insulating yourself against it. And sometimes targeted killings are unfortunately the only option to sending in this, the, you know, the first division, as it were. Uh, much debate over this. There should be. Mm. There should be much public debate so that we are constantly chastening policymakers into the least possible applications, mm. least often applications of this particular choice. Uh, but it, and it's very tough morally, very tough. Well, it is. It's a bit like there's that question, you know, people like to hypothesize about what if you could have, you know, you could go back in time and shoot Adolf Hitler before he became the Adolf Hitler we know. How many lives could have been saved by that one death? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Well, it is. And um, I mean, Churchill faced it when he had the Enigma Code material mm. that would have enabled him to target this is a little off center, but a little on as well. 
when he could have targeted some of the trains heading east with the Jewish, uh, uh, the, the, the Jews who had been rolled up by the Nazis and were heading for the death camps. He had the choice of bombing those trains. And yet if he'd done so, he would have tipped his hand just as he would have tipped his hand if he'd prevented the bomb, bombing of Coventry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, he, he, he could have done it. He knew it was coming, that, that hit was coming. And he saved the secret rather than save the city and rather than, than prevent the trains from moving. And so he had to make a very, very critical choice. In retrospect, I sort of get it. Mm. There is a, a similar debate over the use and I can debate over the use of the atom bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another option. You could have made a demonstration sh- strike offshore, perhaps terrorize the Japanese into surrendering. Yeah. Truman decided that the possibility of Amer- a million American uh, Marines having to land and soldiers to land in Japan, which was still highly militarized and still unwilling to admit defeat was just too high a price to pay or risks to run. So he, he opted for the, the bombing. Mm. In retrospect, we can look at the other options and say, well, maybe not. I think if you put yourself in his shoes, my father would have been part of that. He was a Marine. He mm. would have been part of that invasion force going in over the beaches. He never thought Truman made the wrong decision. So all of the moral the, the moral constraints that we must adhere and, and acknowledge and observe sometimes give way. And mm. I think that sometimes if it, as to the question of whether we could have, we should have killed Hitler when we realized where he was going, perhaps after he made, you know, the, the Ribbentrop Molotov pact or whatever it was, certainly after moving into Czechoslovakia, Poland, should we have done it? Well, first of all, the Americans weren't in the game to mm. that point, mm. and the British were too in battle. So it's sort of a moot question. Yeah. Um, but uh, theoretically, theoretically, I think many people would argue, yeah. Uh, you, you, and certainly, you know, the colonels or the generals' plot against Hitler was a, a, a move in that direction, and I think the Allies would have supported it. And I think that was one of the reasons. The generals attempted it mm. because they thought the Americans and the Allies would respond favorably. So, uh, it tough question. It is very, yeah. very important that you bring it up. It's one of the things I wanted to mention to you. It's sort of on topic and not quite. Yeah. Uh, it's a it, issue of morality mm. in Vietnam, mm. and I hear a lot of anti-war people, former anti-war people, still saying it was an immoral war. And you know, I'm. I give them their feeling about this, but I want to tell you this. Morality never worked as an argument if you were in the CIA. I remember I once uh, encountered a prisoner who was being tortured mercilessly, and I went to the CIA uh, officer who commanded me at the time, and I said, uh, Jesus, he's being really beaten to a pulp, and it's just immoral. He said to me, what did you say? I said, and I suddenly realized I used a bad word. I said, immoral. Mm. He said, don't ever try to argue morality here. 140,000 North Vietnamese are within 20 minutes of downtown Saigon. You want me to go to the South Vietnamese leadership 
and say, oh, some American believes that it is immoral to torture a prisoner. I said, well, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought it was the end of my career. <laughs> I said, well, sir, he can't talk. He can't give us any intelligence, this tortured prisoner. He said, Frank, that's the argument you make to me. I can take that to the South Vietnamese. I can take a practical argument. Never argue morality. It doesn't work in this environment. And I remember that lesson, boy, because morality wasn't part of the effective language in Vietnam. If you were part of the CIA, the military, and what have you. And it's very hard for an outsider to understand that. And what I'm saying probably is shocking to most former anti-war activists, but that's the truth. I did a previous podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago about motivations of spies. And I was just wondering if there's anything you might be able to talk about with Ovan Barr about his motivations, about why why he became a sort of CIA asset. Yes, I am, absolutely. Vovan Barr initially soured on the revolution, which he joined in the late 1940s as a youth organizer for the Viet Minh, mm. the precursor of the Viet Cong. He soured because they had used terror to win hearts and minds. And this didn't sit well with him. He was a, a Cal Dai Buddhist. They are essentially committed to nonviolence. They became a target for Viet Cong recruitment, and that also played into his disaffection. But in any event, uh, he tried to escape the terror in the province where he uh, was brought up south of Saigon. He moved to Tainan which was the province where the Communist Command was located, set up as a uh, slash-and-burned farmer. And he, his family began to grow, and he decided that he needed more money. Mm. And the police and a, a relative already who was working for the South Vietnamese police persuaded him to begin working with them as an informant, picking up scuttlebutt from cadre from Coslin, the communist command, who were passing through his rice paddies. And they knew of his former revolutionary background, so he seemed to be an easy fit for them. And as time went on, uh, the CIA paid him a lot of money in gold, which he buried uh, for safekeeping. And also, the CIA strengthened its uh, hold on him by getting his son, who was vulnerable to the draft in South Vietnam, exempt. And that made him all the more beholden to our side. And I think that he was essentially, like very, very many Vietnamese, a fence-sitter. And he was in a position really to play both sides, because he, he had all this access inside the communist command and he had access to us and i think he gave us legitimate information i know we authorized his handing over to the communist relatively harmless information poison peanuts we called it uh, that he could use to to confirm his bona fides to the enemy so his motivations were mixed, part mercenary, part very spiritual because of his hatred for what the communists had done with terror. And uh, also, I think, habit. Uh, with many Vietnamese, too, it looked as though the Americans had the mandate of heaven. And when they began to depart, that the South Vietnamese did. Mm. And if you were 
your average uh, rice paddy guy or slash and burn farmer, you're going to tilt in the direction of power and money and patronage. And that was all on the government side until the very end of the war. And he never disaffected, as you, as it were. He never decided to revert and go back to the communists. I think because he felt very guilty because of the blood on his own hands. When he was a young communist, he had helped murder uh, and uh, seduce people through terror. And that just didn't sit well with him. Mm. So, And he was also a very intellectual fellow. He thought through things. As I pointed out, he had a... He had a um, a photographic memory, and I think that he was intrigued by the intellectual byplay that came with being a spy. So all of these things were attributes that we assessed and that I had an opportunity to assess as I dealt with him. He, just for your information, he did not do well on a lie detector test, which we gave to him in 1971, 1970-71. And that was because I believe in retrospect, and I believed at the time, that he he was selling his secrets not merely to the special branch of the police and the CIA, but he was also peddling them elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and what he would do, which meant the military security service, the, the South Vietnamese CIA, they were all receiving sidebar reports from him for yeah. additional money. And he... Um, he signed these reports using the name of fellow communist cadre inside the communist command so that if his chicanery was ever found out by the communists, they would go after these people. Wow. And indeed they did. <laughs> yeah. Once he was captured, these reports began to be the, – these reports fell into communist hands. And that brings me to one issue I wanted to – bring up with you. Mm, mm. The reason we know so much, and I can talk so much about the operations involving Vovan Ba, the spy, is that the documents and files that the CIA assembled on him and the special branch of the police assembled on him were all captured by the communists. Mm. They all fell under communist hands after the war. And public security cadre in Hanoi have spent the past 45 years culling through these files and reconstructing Ba's career because they cannot get over that one guy so bamboozled them. And they've begun publishing their findings online and in various North Vietnamese or Vietnamese communist publications. Hmm. And just to give you an idea of what they grudgingly concluded about him that he was one of the most brilliant people who'd ever worked in the war Mm. on either side. They said, here's a quote from a Ministry of Public Security publication from 2012, recently relatively so. They say, over the course of 10 years of service to the enemy, Vo Van Ba inflicted severe damage on the revolution. They went on to say in another journal, He wormed his way deep and climbed high in our internal organization. The spy knew all of our important military and political information and provided it to the CIA. So that's unquote. And so that's their assessment of this extraordinary spy. And because of their reconstruction of his career, I can tell you, in fact, some of the reconstruction deals with my dealings with them Mm. and, and 
recount that. So it is now possible in retrospect to, to determine and to reveal what he did, which I couldn't do in my original book, Decent Interval, which was published in 1977, shortly after the war, because so much of this detail was still classified. I'm very happy to be able to do it because Vauvenbach was a, a hero of the nationalist cause, which has been humiliated and shamed in so many ways. And I think the Vietnamese refugee diaspora all over the world, uh, the people who escaped Saigon, deserve to have their own hero. And I have spent time with museums down in Orange County here in California, little Saigon there, uh, talking with them about Vauvenbach and looking towards constructing memorials to him because he was really their Nathan Hale, mm. their their spy. He was the original American spy. Vauvenbach was their spy. And he was so extraordinary, as I say, that the enemy, even to this day, celebrates him in a backhanded way mm. by studying his, his exploits. So he is an extraordinary character. And I have to tell you, too, his, his exploits have not been examined until now, certainly by Western historians. Max Hastings, a, a British historian, has written a history of the Vietnam War published recently. I tried to get him interested in Vauvan Bob, but he didn't quite click into it. Yeah. That's a mistake because I think you have to understand what this guy did to really read the war in a proper perspective, to understand why the war ended as it did and why the Americans and the communists uh, behaved as they did, because so much of what he was doing gave an extra dimension dimension to the war. Really in a very, very important figure in the history of Vietnam and the lessons we can draw from it. Yeah, I wanted to... Um, also, just give you a footnote about the prisoner I, in, I interrogated. I mentioned him to you before, yeah. Nguyen Van Thai. Nguyen Van Thai was a former bodyguard to Ho Chi Minh. He became a major spy master in Hanoi, ran the operations that captured all the CIA spies who were sent across the border into the north uh, in the early 1960s. He came south, headed up spy operations in the Saigon area, and was captured in 1970. And in 1972, I became his principal. I became his only interrogator, mm. and I spent six months with him, uh, trying to break him down, because he had been. He was so important. The CIA had turned down offers from the communists to exchange Americans whom they held for Nguyen Van Thai, and these were early prisoner exchange proposals. The CIA rejected them, and I was brought in to prove uh, – I was the last resort, truly – to prove that we had done the right thing by not releasing him. We mm. had to generate some intelligence, and I generated to the CIA's satisfaction enough intelligence to justify our holding him. That became part of the public record, which has been made available through court action against me, so I'm not – just blowing my whistle, this is what the CIA said. Now, what happened to Nguyen Van Thai is instructive because it tells us how the communist revolution ultimately ate their own. After, when Saigon fell, I thought Nguyen Van Thai had been killed by his uh, South Vietnamese jailers. That's what I wrote in the, edition, the original edition of my book, mm. Decent Interval. 
then I discovered many years later that he had talked his way out of a death sentence at the hands of his jailers by promising that he would save their lives if he spoke up for them yeah. when the communists entered the city. And that's exactly what happened. At that point, Nguyen Van Tai should have been welcomed back to by his comrades as a great hero. Mm. But they never could account for what he had told me during my interrogation, during my sessions with him, in part because I worked with an American interpreter, not a Vietnamese one, because I feared that my Vietnamese interpreters might be suborned by spies inside mm. the National Interrogation Center. Yeah. And I felt that if Nguyen Van Thai, this prisoner, believed that he was safe from surveillance by his own people, he might open up with me. With me. Mm. And so I brought in an American interrogator, and although everything I did with him was videotaped and recorded on film and on audio tape, much of that was destroyed. Mm. So when the communists took over, they could not determine what it, he told me. And though they captured the Vietnamese woman who had been my interpreter and tortured her and tortured her continually, yeah. she couldn't reveal mm. what had he had said to me. Mm. He interrogated her. And when Van Tai, once he was freed, he interrogated this Vietnamese woman who performed, by the way, heroically mm. and resisted their, uh, their pressures. She was even interrogated by Ladoc Tho, mm. who was number two man in the Politburo at wow. this particular time. That's how critical it was. And because Nguyen Van Tai could never rehabilitate himself. He could never account for what he had told me. The regime beat him to a pulp. And only just a few years before his death, when they finally discovered that a clerical error, a, a misreading of a particular document they had captured, had led them to believe he'd handed something to us, hmm. the CIA. Only when they realized that, realized that clerical error did they finally, finally embrace him. And he died about three years ago, celebrated mm. as a hero of the revolution. Wow. But he wrote a secret memoir in which he said and complained uh, that his comrades had stabbed him in the back. Yeah. So if anyone is looking to... <laughs> to write a, a revisionist history of the way the North Vietnamese and the communists operated, they should look to Nguyen Van Thai mm. and what happened to him. He was a very tough, brave revolutionary. I grudgingly admired him immensely because of his self-discipline and his ability to survive the most incredible pressures. But, but the revolution ate him up and spit him out. Finally, this woman, his former interpreter, the one who worked with me, with him, mm. was released after 17 years in re-education camp. She now lives in Orange County, and I'm working with her to reconstruct her experiences with Nguyen Van Tai. So in any event, this is another footnote to mm. the experiences mm. I wrote about what are your thoughts kind of on the legacy of Vietnam? Because when you watch movies today, a lot of people downplay communism and make it out to be propaganda. And I'm just sort of fascinated about what your thoughts are on Vietnam and how we look at it today. All of the standard explanations of what happened in Vietnam work and don't work at mm. the same time. Mm. 
The communists were expansionists. The Chinese had influence in the North Vietnamese and the hardliners in Hanoi did want to expand communism into the South. So it is wrong to treat that as a non-starter, as a theory. The anti-war movement people, many of whom are now my dear friends, they all still cling to this, that the communists somehow had won hearts and minds, that they owned the right to revolution in the South mm. And that the Northern somehow were the avatars of the natural avatars of revolution. Mm. That's just not so. Mm. Uh, no Vietnamese. What had happened was the communists very cleverly imprinted the United States with the onus of the anti-revolutionaries, colonialism, colonialism that had been attached to the French, rightly. The Americans never gone to Vietnam. They went to Vietnam for stupid reasons. They thought that... Communism was monolithic, not realizing Hanoi mm. hated the Chinese, mm. was very suspicious of them. But look, I want you to, I want most people to focus on this because I tell my friends who keep saying it, oh, it was so simple. We should have known from the beginning Vietnam was a, a stupid crusade. In 1965, the very year that American forces arrived in combat formations for the first time, mm. large ones, that was a year that the Chinese tested their hydrogen bomb. And I, I, I give you that the North Vietnamese and the Chinese were at each other's throats, but it wasn't known at the time, not until Nixon's opening in 1972 to mm, China, mm. was the real split between the North Vietnamese and, and the Chinese really understood. And what had happened was when, when because of that split between Hanoi and the Chinese in Beijing, the Soviets stepped into the gap. The Soviets were trying in the early 60s to reach out to the United States because it gives a missile crisis, whatever, and fall out from it. That peaceful coexistence was the watchword. And what happened when the U.S. sent ground forces in in 1965, the Soviets saw an opportunity. Be damned with coastal, uh, peaceful coexistence. We're going to help our brethren in the north mm. by sending materiel. Mm. And so they did. They, were, they saw an opportunity there to screw the South, the Chinese, yeah. by the way, yeah. to offset their influence. So things sort of began moving in, in an execrable direction. But one of, the, one of the things that really burns me up until 2011, Francis Fitzgerald's book, Fire and the Like, was still being taught at West Point as somehow a text on what had gone wrong in Vietnam. Francis Fitzgerald, I knew she used to show up in Saigon. She was girlfriends to the Newsweek bureau chief. Yeah. She dipped in and she dipped out. She was a she was a, a school book communist uh, expert. Mm. She didn't know anything about Vietnamese communism, but she supposed that the Vietnamese communists had the mantle of heaven. And she persuaded a whole generation of anti-war activists that that was so, that the communists had somehow righteousness on their side. Neither side had righteousness, least of all the United States, righteousness on their side. It was all, everybody had a mixed agenda and, and a very complicated and often an agenda based on misinformation and misunderstanding. North Vietnamese to the last believed there would be a general uprising. That was stupid. After 1968, there wasn't any. Mm. The people in Way fought the communists and joined the Americans and the South Vietnamese forces. And then the communists killed 2,000 of them, mm. the, city, the city's denizens. 
And the communists launched the great offensive of 1972 with armor across the DMZ because they realized there was no political or popular support for them in the South. And they had to wage a main force war to win. So all this crap about the communists somehow being the the Christ child Mm. of the revolution is nonsense. Mm. And that's something we haven't relearned. I see it echoed all the time in, in revision. Streets of the war. Something else, something else that you read that, oh, the U.S. Congress, the Democrats in the U.S. Congress screwed the South Vietnamese by withholding aid. Wait a minute. In April of 1975, the very day the communists overran Da Nang, the General Accounting Office of the United States government completed a, a year long study of the logistics situation in Vietnam. They discovered the South Vietnamese logistics systems inherited from the Americans was so screwed up, they couldn't account for any of the aid the United States had given them. They had spare parts for Jeeps that were in Da Nang when the Jeeps were in the Delta. They had never set up a system that would have enabled them to use U.S. aid effectively. Mm. So to say that any withholding of aid screwed the South Vietnamese and sent them to defeat is baloney. Baloney. And yet you will hear revisionists, particularly on the conservative side, say again and again, oh, these Democrats, Biden, you know, I don't know, he supported, he, he killed aid for South Vietnam. Baloney. And that's another lesson. You have to know your friends before you go or you get in bed with them because you're going to discover they may not be able to use the aid you give them. And we never learned that. Instead, scapegoating for what happened to Vietnam continues. And uh, th- there's been a recent book published on the fall of Saigon, but I know nothing author who argues it, the name of the book is, is honorable exit. What honorable exit. And he says, well, you know, a bunch of uh, us military officers managed to rescue a bunch of South Vietnamese who otherwise been left behind. By the way, folks, it wasn't merely us military officers. It was as if, you know, the U.S. military yeah. lost the war, but they rescued the evacuation. Yeah. Baloney! Those same, so the same military officers were those who convinced Martin he was right there would be negotiations. They were the guys who were dealing with the counterparts in Hanoi right at that crazy moment when we were still looking for information on American missing in action. Those guys in Hanoi told These same military officers, oh, yeah, the embassy will be able to negotiate after Mm. a new ceasefire. Mm. So Martin was convinced, Mm. yes, negotiations are coming. So they bear the onus of having persuaded Martin to override Vauvan Ba and the good good intelligence. It was Vauvan Ba, not any God-blessed American soldiers who saved that evacuation. It was Vauvan Ba because he persuaded Kissinger that they better start preparing for an emergency airlift. And poor Vo Van Bad died because he reported for us. So I am sick and tired of the people who supposedly know what happened, but don't know that nothing about Vo Van Bad. Mm. This is the hero of the nationalist cause. And he's been forgotten. Even his South Vietnamese, the refugee community, has just begun to learn about him. I, I went to a museum down mm. in Little Saigon and told them about Vauvin Ba. I said, wow, we never realized we had such a hero. Yeah, you did. Because the Americans had so often disregarded his reporting. And even American historians 
have been left blinded to his contribution. But boy, that's going to change. Is that because he wasn't an American? Oh, of course it, it was. Of course it was. I mean, uh, it, sad to say, war creates or strengthens biases. Mm. And the Americans, on top of everything else, truth to tell, many American GIs looked down on the South Vietnamese. Now, part of it was a consequence of the natural impulse in war to dehumanize the mm. enemy. Mm. That The old term gooks borrowed from Korea. Yeah, yeah. Again and again used to dehumanize the Viet Cong mm. because you can't kill people you believe mm. are like you. Mm. So you, as in every war, the enemy becomes a monster. Mm. So that sort of rolled off and rubbed off on attitudes towards the South Vietnamese. They are somehow not quite ever human. Can you talk to us a little bit about Southern Vietnam? Because I think today, uh, and forgive my way of putting it, I think a lot of people make out that somehow Southern Vietnam and the Southern Vietnamese are kind of like almost Uncle Tom figures or something. Well, I I don't think so. Southerners... Uh, were always sort of workaround artists mm. because they worked around the French, they'd worked around the Japanese, and they worked around the Viet Minh. They worked around the Americans. They became an urbanized society instead of a rural rice growing society in the course of the war. And so they worked around all of this. And the Northerners were single minded. They were always moving south, moving south, trying to get rid of the Americans the colonialists or the colonialists, the mm. proto-colonialists in the form of the Americans. And so they weren't workaround artists. And I think that that same sort of uh, cleverness, um, that adaptability, sets the Southerners off from the Northerners even today. Now, when I went back to Vietnam in 1991 with the BBC camera crew, mm. I was stunned at how much of Saigon seemed to operate the way it had always done. Yeah. It was, you know, people always working a deal, always sort of playing it very cool, very smart. And I think that even today, from what I read, the Southerners continue to operate this way. Uh, there is a police state imposed on them, mm. but it's hard to... and. Vietnam is such a variegated society geographically in terms of just its physical makeup. The Delta is so different. Mm. It's very hard to impose a police state in the Delta mm. when you're dealing with scattered rice farmers, mm. uh, rice growers. So it, it, it's a little looser gooser in the, in the South even today, and it certainly was that way during the war. I really resist any suggestion that they're just Uncle Tomming it vis-a-vis mm. -vis the communists. Mm. I think they're, I think they're, look, the first allegiance for most Vietnamese is their ancestral ground, where they stand and where they lived and where they bury their ancestors. And everything else beyond that in the immediate family is sort of secondary. Communism overrode a lot of those connections, but they didn't erase them. And it, it, when Northerners were coming south, as we discovered when we captured letters off the bodies of their dead, their first concern was with their family back home. And they were overwhelmed with guilt that they had been drawn away from their ancestral grounds and might die far from them. So, um, 
there was there were cultural enthymemes or controls, if you will, mm. that always militated against the kind of discipline the communists wanted to impose, and that the Americans just sort of, oh yeah, it's going to happen because the democracy is so great. No, there were other things going on in the Vietnamese mindset that made all of those constructs seem a little bit foreign. With Vo Van Bar, is there a growing interest in him now? Yes, there is among the Vietnamese I've spoken to. Mm. Uh, his case was shrouded in official secrecy, and I broke the secrecy to a certain extent in my original book. Mm. But only now, now that the North Vietnamese or the Vietnamese political cadre and security cadre are researching his career, can we speak in detail about mm, him? Mm. And I really, uh, I think that it would be a palliative to many of the Vietnamese diaspora to know how brave one of their own was and how, what a service he did for them. Again, as I've said before, very few of us would have gotten out of Vietnam by helicopter mm. had it not been for the intelligence he provided. Also, just the way we manage Bob, the way he, he was exploited, the interaction, my interaction as an analyst with his case officers is really a good test case for the way very complicated intelligence cases should be handled. Um, normally, spy handlers are very jealous. The operatives don't want to hear from any outsider. And that's absurd because the operative on the ground doesn't have all the collateral intelligence to exploit to the fullest the source. They need additional input. And the analyst sitting in on that operation can bring that additional input to bear. And that's what my involvement as a sidebar role, why it was so important. And I think should in some way serve as a small model for the way these operations are handled in the future. Frank, can you talk to us about the Soviet and Chinese involvement during the Vietnam War? Well, first of all, 300,000 Chinese uh, served the communist cause in Vietnam. They are now the forgotten veterans in China. Mm. <laughs> My book was re recently published in China. It was a big bestseller, and partly among them. <laughs> so, but uh, they were largely manning any aircraft weaponry, training the Vietnamese, the use of any aircraft weaponry, and involved in logistics. The Soviets were initially involved in training intelligence operatives, and they also gave them equipment which enabled electronic equipment that enabled the North Vietnamese mm, to spoof mm, us, mm. to lead us to believe that, say, large military units were somewhere because we were picking up radio messages from these alleged units. When in, in fact, what we were doing was simply picking up spoof signals from one single radio transmitter in the jungle. That was very important during the last days of the war because we were misled by just such a Soviet uh, spoof into believing that during that crucial month of March, the communists would strike first in the northern part of the highlands because we were picking up messages there when in fact they struck in the southern part. And so we were doubly ill prepared for it. So the Soviets and the KGB provided some very important technical equipment 
to the North Vietnamese. I don't think it was essential to winning the war. And by the way, the North Vietnamese were always very suspicious of what they got from the, the Russians because they are very, the North Vietnamese communists were very proud folk. They'd won their spurs by beating the bejesus out of the French. They didn't need advice from anybody. And they knew perfectly well, as they proved time and again, how to run spies on their own. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, I mean, the commentary I see today, I even was watching a film, The Five Bloods, and it, and it just sort of paints the South and the Americans as it was just all about money and nothing else. And, and Well, yeah. I, I, I saw that movie and I watched it with great care because I was fascinated with how it would be treated. Problem is they were doing the treasury of Sierra Madre yeah, combined yeah. with uh, other stories. And I think they diminished, the director, Spike Lee, diminished his message because he did mix up the financial mm. with the uh, the very true grievances of black GI. Yeah. In 1971, I, when I, my last, last year, my first tour, there were fraggings in Vietnam. Often American black GIs mm. were venting their racial uh, frustration on their commanders because they were dying. Mm. They'd seen Woodstock. They were dying while white people were sitting out the war. Yeah. And uh, I, one of the closest calls ever came was from American GIs who uh, – were pissed off that I was taking uh, supplies to a prisoner, medical supplies. And they, they, they grabbed the supplies and pulled a weapon on me and said, get out of here, we'll kill you. If wow. you don't leave. So this was in an interrogation center. So the, the, the racial tensions and the tensions generally uh, were alive and well, and I think accurately reflected in the five bloods. Mm, mm. Um, but I think the the more important message was sort of got scrambled because there was a lot of money floating around and there were a lot of black marketeers among American GIs Mm. and what have you. And the CIA was indeed flying drugs because drugs were being moved by the Laotian tribesmen who were also working with us to fight Mm. the communists, Mm. blah, blah, blah. Mm. There were a lot of, a lot of crossed lines, if you will, and, and very immoral. In in the commentary in the world today, uh, especially stuff I've sort of read about spies, things like that, a lot of the focus is always on America, Britain, and Europe, and it's always and you're going to get the impression that America is like the sole imperial power in the world. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are, especially as you were in CIA and stuff, that, about sort of the role of Russia and Russian imperialism in the past and during the Cold War, because I feel like people are forgetting that now. Well. Um, let me just add mm. a small footnote to what I've told you before. Uh, among the people in Saigon that I briefed all the time was the British ambassador, <laughs> yes. the Australian yeah. ambassador, yeah. and the New Zealand ambassador, all part of the, the with the Canadians, of the five eyes. Mm. We all share intelligence. Mm. I want to emphasize that word, share, yeah. share. Yeah. So there were a lot of third-party interests in what was going on. Mm-hmm. And the British and the Australians in particular were very concerned about what we knew and what they could provide us to help us make the American crusade work. Okay, backing up. Um, the What people who debate the Cold War and condemn the United States for Vietnam forget is that we were there for mis- misunderstood reasons and for 
simply misguided reasons. We thought there was an expansionist monolith called communism. There wasn't. We weren't there to collect oil or riches the way standard expansionists are. But the Russians are, and the Chinese are. The Chinese are all over Africa now. Mm. Practicing, they're making King Leopold of Belgium look like a piker because they're co-opting the China, the uh, the Africans uh, into building railways and, and roads that will serve Chinese interests, imperial colonial interests, mm. the marketplace. Mm. The Chinese and the Soviets, both using the Cubans, staged proxy wars in Africa in the mid-1960s, Angola. Mozambique, and what have you. Che Guevara was at the forefront of this effort, mm. and he was underwritten by the Soviets and the Chinese, certainly during his sojourn in Africa. And so it is a little lopsided to think that the United States was somehow the only uh, progenitor and promoter of allegedly neocolonialism. And we let's not forget that Castro allowed the Soviets to set up their missiles in Cuba. So, mm. hey, it's a very it was a very complicated picture. Mm-hmm. And today, the United States, um, I think, is morally obliged to pick up the mess in places like Iraq. I think it was foolhardy for us to go in and overthrow Saddam because this guy had certainly been able been, been able to keep that country together. Uh, Overriding our policy was our concern for Israel, its equities with Iran and so forth. And that's all very valid. We have to be very careful though, allowing very legitimate Israeli interests to guide all of our decisions. I think that's what led us to the Iran-Contra crisis, Mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. The Israelis were so tied up in it. Mm -hmm. They were selling arms to South Americans that they picked up in, um, in Lebanon. Arms exports were the third, I think, most important Israeli export, and they sold them in Latin America, and they helped us promote the Contras, and uh, and uh, Noria, uh, Manuel Noriega. <laughs> Nobody knows this, but the Mossad, Mossad adopted Noriega as a as a honorary agent because he was so instrumental in helping them push arms sales that they needed for foreign exchange in, in South and Central America. So. All of these crazy, everybody may have a dollar interest yeah. in seeking influence elsewhere. The, you know, the the American government was horrendous in supporting, you know, big uh, banana companies in Guatemala and what have you. Nobody comes into this with clean hands. And frankly, the only way to mitigate the adverse effects of such influences and others who have followed the colonial example under another guise, they must study the past and recognize the truth that there were many people who were in the game. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, one thing that sort of interested me is that Americans are often blamed for getting into, into Vietnam because they let ideology get in the way, and that helped defeat them. It made them make big mistakes and mis calculations. Actually, the same thing could be said of the communists. Yeah. The communist, particularly Lays One, he was the hardliner who headed the Politburo and really supplanted uh, Ho Chi Minh and Vo Nguyen Yap and all the other old timers who had 
won the war against the French colonialists. Lezwan believed, because he had studied the Cuban Revolution, that like Castro, communist forces, when they moved into the towns of South Vietnam, Castro and Cuba, there would be a general uprising. The people would all rally to the communist forces. That's what had happened in Cuba. And one of the reasons he mounted or insisted on mounting the Tet Offensive of 1968, which in military terms was a disaster because it cost the communists so many lives, so many lives, to the point that they had to sort of pull back for two years. One of the reasons he went into that uh, offensive and advocated for it was that he believed that people would rise up. His ideology got in the way of strategic thinking. It screwed it up just the way ideology screwed up our thinking. And it's an important sort of sidebar to examine because it teaches should teach us all that when ideology begins to think for you in warfare, if you begin to operate by rote mm. rather than by intelligence, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And it's it's very possible the communists would have thought, rethought the wisdom of the Tet Offensive and certainly the costs it implied had they not been thinking with their ideology instead of their intelligence. Mm. One last thing. You were talking earlier about your trip with the BBC back to Vietnam in 1991. Have you been back since then? No, I'd like to. I had intended to go back to be reunited with Nguyen Van Thai, the person I interrogated, and he died before I could make it. Yeah. Also, my book has been my book has been published in Vietnam many times. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure that I would be entirely welcome there. Very frankly, I was when I went to back to Vietnam in 1991. It, when I think back on it, I think it's a wonder I got out because we I interviewed their spy chief in Hanoi, Mai Chi Tho, whose protege was Nguyen Van Thai, the guy I had interrogated. I didn't know at that point during that interview that Thai was still alive and might even be standing in the shadows watching this interview. Oh wow! And <laughs> And, and knowing that it, uh, now, I'm amazed that they didn't pull me aside and say, we have some questions to talk to you about. Because remember, they were trying to establish what Ty had told me so that they could rehabilitate him or put him into a re-education camp. So there were high stakes. This was a major, the, the fight over Nguyen Van Ty's bona fides was for the Northerners, a major ideological struggle, the hardliners who loved him were fighting the new wave of leadership for control of post-war Vietnam. And his fate and his credibility was part of that struggle. So I'm surprised, again, that they didn't... We, we, we'd like to put you in a Snow White room and interrogate you and goodbye yeah. to the BBC camera crew. They didn't do that, and I'm amazed uh, that they didn't. But... Uh, there you are. What was it like going back there after after that time? When I went into the U.S. Embassy and into my old office in the embassy with a BBC camera crew, I discovered that nothing had been disturbed except the electrical fixtures because the communists felt we had bugged the place and that there were still – there were buried bombs there that might blow up on them. And so it was like walking right back – into 
the world I left on April 29th, 1975. I went up to the helicopter pad. There was lots of mold up there, Mm. but it was all the same. And uh, the elevators had stopped the last day. They didn't run when I went back in 1991. (laughs) And so there was a sense of stepping right back into history. Now, that embassy has was to be torn down. I believe it's been maintained as a a, a tourist center or something of the mm, sort. Mm. But um, it, it's it's all. It, and when I went to Hanoi, uh, I went to their war museum, mm. and there was a little model of the embassy with a toy helicopter on the roof on a string. And every once in a while, they would pull that string, and the helicopter would leave the roof. And the tourist guide would say, now that's when the Americans left Saigon. This is what happened when the, they went running with their tail between their legs. And I watched this and I thought, well, I was almost on that last job or I was on one of the last ones off that roof. And so it was, I always had the temptation to say, no, that's not exactly the way it happened. <laughs> but I did kept my peace because there was a, a little model of Tian Bien Phu and the embassy stood as a this model of the embassy as a temple to their victory. Mm. So it was all very, very odd mm. uh, to to revisit and very valuable. It put my own experiences in um, a soothing perspective. Yeah. Because I felt that with all the wounds of war, we were seeing some healing. Thank you so much for all that, because that was amazing. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, I have two websites. One is franksnip.com, and the other is my own rant uh, platform called franksnepexclusives.com. And I have been writing extensively on Bolton, on Vietnamese-American voter attitudes in the United States. And all anything that comes to my that pricks my interest. I, my second career was at an, as an investigative journalist, mm. precisely because I didn't want to get labeled a Vietnam whistleblower, CIA whistleblower. I started an entirely new career. Mm. I excelled fairly well. I won a Peabody Award for some of my investigations, and so I, I don't identify solely as you know this CIA malcontent. And uh, my websites reflect that. Yeah, no, fantastic. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.